I'm not 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. We're in our nine days format, and Rabbi Beryl Wine is educating us on the topic of Jerusalem geography. This is the third in the five-part series. We begin from the beginning of part three. We had uh, gotten uh, through a good part of part three uh, late yesterday. We'll start from the beginning and reach its conclusion uh, before the end of this hour. Rabbi Barrel Wine, Jerusalem Geography, Part 3. You're listening to JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns uh, a street in the German colony. And uh, since uh, there are going to be a number of streets in the German colony in this lecture series, so I'd like to say a few things about the German colony itself. In the 19th century, uh, there were, throughout Europe, especially amongst the Protestants, uh, there was a messianic fervor. There was a belief somehow that the end of the world was coming and that the Messiah is around the corner. And because of that, there was a... uh, great interest in the land of Israel. Now, in the Middle Ages, when the uh, Christian world had a messianic fervor after the Reformation, after Martin Luther, there uh, they said that the new Jerusalem would be uh, Strasbourg, Geneva. It would happen in Europe. But in the 19th century, when they had this messianic fervor, uh, they said it would happen in the land of Israel. And that therefore, there were groups of Christians from various countries that set their goal to settle and colonize in the land of Israel. Now these were not large groups but the whole country was small and the population was small so it had an impression in the time of the crusades there were German crusaders and they created a group called the Knights of the Temple or the Templar Knight and uh, this was uh, a pretty exclusive group and they were very powerful and for a long time they controlled Jerusalem later they moved to Cyprus and to other areas in the Middle East in 1873 this is all long before Zionism in 1873 there was a German Protestant believer in the messianic era occurring before the beginning of the millennium before the beginning of the next century rather and uh, he purchased from a uh, an Arab that owned a large tract of land here now Jerusalem then was a very small city it was basically the old city There would later be a few outlying neighborhoods. But uh, all of this was prairie. All of this was open. 
was uh, pasture land that was not settled at all and not built up. So he bought this from an absentee Arab landlord. He bought what is called the German colony. And he uh, brought over Germans, Protestant Germans, who believed that the Messianic era was about to occur. And they began to build homes on this tract of land that he had purchased. The homes they built were German in style. In fact, many of them were wooden homes. And uh, they uh, brought tiled roofs to Jerusalem. And they were the ones that made the red tiled roofs, which uh, pretty much uh, are popular throughout the country. And this group, the Knights Templars, they called themselves again, uh, settled. So there were a few hundred of them. They later grew to be about two or three thousand. And that's why it was called a German colony, because uh, all of these neighborhoods were not attached to each other. So Katamon was Arab, the German colony was German, there was the Greek colony that was Greek, the French were here, the English also were here, with the Anglican colony off of Derech Beit Lechem. And uh, only in our time, since uh, the state of Israel has, so to speak, all of these colonies coalesced into neighborhoods that run one into another and form the city of Jerusalem as we know it today. Now, these Germans, uh, the streets that they had, had German names. And they existed here uh, through the First World War, even though Germany was an ally of the Ottoman Empire and England opposed them. When Great Britain took over, they did not in any way uh, harm or discriminate against the German colony. And between the wars, the German colony grew. When Hitler came to power in the 1930s, so one of the uh, uh, ideas that Hitler uh, broadcast all over the world is that he was going to unite all Germans under him, wherever a German lived. That was his basis for taking over the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. That was his basis for joining Mayanschluss with Austria, wherever German or German speakers were, Danzig in Poland. One of the places that he wanted to take over is here. And they, uh, the inhabitants, were uh, very pro-German and very pro-Hitler. Uh, 
that was not a rare thing. I remember in Chicago, when I was a child, before America entered the war, uh, there was the German-American Bund, Fritz Kuhn and others, that uh, had mass rallies supporting Hitler, that marched in the Chicago streets, especially in the Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, this idea of German unity all over the world uh, struck strong roots. When the Second World War broke out, the British deported all of the Germans that lived in the land of Israel. That was uh, the niceties of international law were not observed. And uh, all of them were kicked out of the German colony. And the German colony then was taken over by uh, British troops. Uh, There was a large British force stationed here in Palestine and in Jerusalem. The British officials and they began to redo the homes in the German colony to cover them with stone instead of wood. They left the red roofs alone. Many of the Germans that were deported, Britain sent them to Australia. Many of them went back to Germany. When the state of Israel was declared in 1948 and the war took place here in Jerusalem, and the Jews conquered West Jerusalem. They drove the Arabs out of Katamon and Talbia and other neighborhoods. Uh, so they took over the, the German colony. As part of the normalization of diplomatic and economic relationships between uh, then it was West Germany and the state of Israel, Israel agreed and paid compensation to the German owners of property in the German colony. And the property then uh, came to the state of Israel, which then sold it to private developers, etc., etc. And then uh, the German colony uh, became a more upscale neighborhood, which it still is today. And then it was bordered Amik Rafaim and Derech Beit Lechem, those two main streets. And there were a lot of little streets in the German colony, as there are today. They go only for a few blocks. And they are perpendicular to these main streets, to Derech Beit Lechem or to Amik Rafaim. One of the streets is called Kremio which is what we're going to discuss tonight. There are other streets there that we'll discuss later, Lloyd George and others. And those streets were named by the naming commission that exists here in Jerusalem that names streets. And the German colony streets uh, have a lot of non-Jews that uh, their names are there. 
and they have uh, Jews as well. Now, Kremyo was born as Yitzchok Moshe Kremyo uh, in Nim in 1796, which is uh, southern France, uh, Provence, that area. But he is not known as Yitzchok Moshe. He's known as Adolf Kremio. Adolphe, the French form of the uh, name of Adolf. He was born into an assimilated family. Uh, his father was a great supporter of the French Revolution, uh, anti-clerical, anti-religious, liberal and uh, that was the education that he received he received almost no Jewish education per se but somehow he felt Jewish which is an interesting thing there are people who are Jewish even though they don't have any background and don't have any education but they're uh, attachment to the Jewish people is in their soul and their being. There are other Jews that may even have great education, but they don't feel so Jewish. And under uh, circumstances many times uh, they turn out to be uh, less than friendly to us. In any event, he attends, he and his cousin, who are the only two Jewish students in their grand, in their elementary school and in their high school and in the lyceum in the college that they went to but when other Jews in that time readily converted to Christianity in order to become part of the general society and we're talking in the 1800s of uh, maybe 250,000 Jews in Western and Central Europe that converted to Christianity because they wanted to be uh, the Israeli never could have been Prime Minister if he weren't an Anglican and that's true of uh, many many others who saw their future only as being a Christian the great uh, poet Heinrich Heine who uh, converted to Christianity said that the ticket to admittance in Western society is to be a Christian. And there were many, many Jews who were willing to buy that ticket. In fact, it was probably the largest, uh, most numerous uh, conversion of Jews to Christianity voluntarily in European history. We didn't convert the way the uh, Spanish Jews were forced to convert or the uh, Russian Jews that were forced to convert in the Russian army. We're talking here about voluntary conversion in order to get ahead in life. And Kremion never converted. He goes to law school. That's all good Jewish boys. And he wants to be admitted to the bar. Now, uh, 
what happened was the revolution was in 1797 by 1799, 1800, 1801 Napoleon is on the scene by 1815 then there's a new republic, then there's the Franco-Prussian War. France is a mess. It's pretty much a mess today, too. Because you have these uh, tremendously conflicting forces in France. One is the Catholic Church. Very strong. Very anti-Semitic. Very conservative. The second is the radicals those that uh, created the revolution very anti-Catholic anti-clerical and then beginning in the 1800s you have a very very strong left and they are all vying for power and none of them ever achieve absolute power so therefore it's a constant tension To become a lawyer in France in the 1820s, which is already after Napoleon, you have to remember that Napoleon granted Jews civil rights, he made them citizens, he removed many legal barriers that allowed Jews freedom in France, even though the anti-Semitism in France never abated, never went away. And we'll see with the Dreyfus trial and other events, uh, the Second World War, the collaboration of France, the destruction of French Jewry. But uh, legally, the Jews in France were free. And they had citizenship rights. However, to become a lawyer, to pass the bar, you had to take an oath. And there was a special oath that was given to Jews. And the oath that was given to Jews stated that this oath cannot be canceled by Kol Nidre. Now one of the accusations against Jews throughout the centuries has been that Jews are not loyal. That no matter whatever oath they take, they are not bound by it because every Yom Kippur they recite Kol Nidre, which says all our oaths are annulled. So how can we ever trust Jews to be loyal? They swear loyalty to a government, to the army, to whatever, and then they say Kol Nidre. So therefore in France, in order to make certain that the original oath was an oath, they instituted a second oath which said that the Kol Nidre, this oath cannot be canceled by Kol Nidre. Now, the Kol Nidre is a different lecture for which you didn't pay and I'm not going to share it with you, but <laughs> that, would, that was the situation. Kremyot refuses to take this oath. He says it's discriminatory against Jews. He refuses to take it. 
somehow he is uh, he, he's a great orator. You know, in our time, uh, the gift of oratory is not uh, as important as it once was. But he was a great orator, and he was a very persuasive person. And somehow they let him into the bar without taking the other oath. Not only that, he immediately defended two other Jewish attorneys who also now, following his example, refused to take the oath. And he successfully defended them in front of the French Bar Association so that in practice the Jewish oath disappeared. And that really is the lodestone for his career. That's what he was. He was a champion of Jewish rights. He was a defender of the Jewish people. He was a defender of individual Jews and the Jewish people generally. And that is how he saw himself. Even though he's a Frenchman to the core, and even though we'll see he serves as a deputy in the French parliament, he was served in a ministry, he was very active in French politics, but that's not what he's known for. I would say uh, he was like a one-man anti-defamation league. Wherever Jews were going to be in trouble, anywhere in the world, as we'll see in a few minutes, he rises to their defense. And uh, he had a very successful law practice, uh, which uh, gave him uh, stature and wealth. So, you know, there were a lot of people that want to stand up for us, but if they don't have money, and they don't have stature, and nobody will listen to them. So it's uh, it's like spitting in the wind. But if you're somebody of stature, if you can be a member of the parliament, or a member of Congress, etc., and if you have independent means, if you have wealth, so then you have opportunities. The question is, what do you do with those opportunities? That really is a question that uh, probably uh, is being asked. I shouldn't say because I don't know heaven, but probably they're asking uh, regarding American Jewry or regarding Jews of influence anywhere in the world. You know, the famous uh, uh, incident which is recorded for us in the Bible that when Yehoshua enters the land of Israel he sees an angel that stands in front of him he doesn't recognize him as an angel he sees a man, somebody's there and he's armed he's got a sword and Yeshua says to him three words four words are you on our side or against us? And the Malach says, Atabosi, I'm on your side, just came now, we're going to have it. But those are, that's the question, right? That is always the question. Are you for us? Are you against us? That's the question that, you know, that, that haunts much of the Jewish world. Because many times people say, I'm for you, but they're not really for you. 
and uh, I don't have to enumerate uh, how that plays out in our world. So in any event, uh, in 1827, he is defending these people against the Jewish oath, and the Jewish oath disappears. So he single-handedly is the one that, uh, that creates, so to speak, a different climate for Jews in France. Then what happened is, because of his uh, oratorical ability and his success and his notoriety, so in 1834 there is something called the Consistoire, which is the consistory of French Jewry which Napoleon made. They're the Jewish organization in France. They still exist till today. Uh, the chief rabbi is appointed by them, etc. And uh, he becomes the president of the organization. And uh, he is zealous in making certain that Jewish rights in France are maintained. And we'll see how in a few minutes because he has a lasting influence far after his death and things that he never imagined which always happens in life you know many times a person does a good thing and you don't realize till 200 years later what a good thing he did because we always play the long game not the short game in 1840 there was a blood libel in Damascus now the blood libel never died the, uh, the libel that Jews use somehow the blood of a Christian child to bake matzahs for Pesach, which was created in the uh, 12th century in uh, England, that uh, libel uh, has an afterlife that exists until today. It's believed in much of the Muslim world today. It's also believed in parts of the Christian world. There is no way of somehow extinguishing that bloodline. So any time that there is a Christian child that's missing and is later found dead, then the Jews did it. That's the only explanation. As late as uh, 1921 in Messina, New York, there was a blood libel. I had a member of my shul in Miami Beach who came from Messina, who was alive then in 1921, and he describes the uh, tremendous uh, hatred towards the Jews because of that blood libel even though the police later naturally found that the Jews had nothing to do with that missing child and that the whole thing was, you know, just fabricated. But uh, again, facts have very little to do with Jewish history and with how people view us. And that's something that the state of Israel is finding out very painfully. It makes no difference what the facts are. So in 1840, there was a priest, Catholic priest in Damascus, that murdered a child. And to exculpate himself, he said that the Jews did it, and that 
they did it to, in order to obtain the blood from the child to bake matzahs. This is 1840. The French had an influence in Damascus. Damascus was under the Ottoman Empire, but the French always have had an influence in Syria. You know, French missionaries there for centuries, and perhaps even dating back to the Crusades. And uh, because the priest said it, so a priest never lies, uh, 13 leading members of the Jewish community in Damascus were arrested by the Turks and under torture they confessed torture uh, rarely elicits truth that's part of the problem that exists today with dealing with terrorists is that uh, information that is gained under uh, what they call today aggressive interrogation uh, many times is very unreliable because people will say almost anything and these people were condemned to death the Ottoman Turks were going to uh, hang them a group of influential Jews around the world headed by Moses Montefiore in England and he had the backing of Queen Victoria and Cremieux in France now Cremieux and Montefiore went to Damascus to defend these Jews and uh, they were able uh, to prove their innocence and that the blood libel was a smear and that it never happened now that was an enormous accomplishment because had the blood libel remained on the book so to speak then it could be repeated over and over again everywhere because it had precedence until now it had no legal precedence it's just what people said but if the Ottoman Turks executed people on the basis of the blood libel, so it must be the blood libel is true. And therefore it would have repercussions all over the world. And uh, Cremieux and Montefiore were able to, uh, of course Montefiore, the fact that he had the backing of Queen Victoria and the British Empire, uh, the Turks were very... Uh, cognizant of that and uh, that played a great role so when you speak about the Damascus blood libel most people associated it with Montefiore but Cremieux is his co-equal partner if not even more in the stifling that blood libel uh, that occurred in 1840 then Later, in Russia, there's a blood libel. Now, the Tsar, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church was terribly anti-Semitic. And uh, the, uh, in an unlettered society, Russia, in the 1800s, 90% uh, of Russia was illiterate, superstitious, and believed in icons, 
and holy men. I mean, it produced Rasputin as late as the 19, 15, 16, 17, till he was assassinated, that he could run a country. So, uh, uh, in a certain Staratov, in a certain village in Russia, a child disappeared. Children disappear, God forbid, but they do all the time. There are unfortunately predators in the world. And uh, the Jews were accused again of this blood libel. And the Tsar said they were guilty. And the Orthodox Church said they were guilty. And they were going to hold a trial. Kremio again travels to St. Petersburg. And he is able, with the help of a Jewish uh, small amount of rich Jews then in Russia, uh, to have this blood libel quashed completely. So the idea didn't go away. The accusation didn't go away. But the legality of it went away. And here is a man that's willing to travel all over the world. You know, he can take a train from uh, Paris to Damascus or a plane from Paris to St. Petersburg. You're talking about rigorous journeys of weeks. And he does it in order to save Jews. In order to prove that the Jewish people are not guilty of any sort of blood libel. So now he views himself, you know, he saved individual Jews. But what are you going to do for the Jewish people as a whole? And here there is a uh, controversial uh, creation which exists until today uh, uh, all over the Jewish world. He created an organization called the Allianz. Alliance to Israel at the Universal, the Universal Alliance Organization of Jews. What was the Alliance's purpose? It had a twofold purpose. One was this anti-defamation league purpose, that the Alliance as an organization, instead of Cremio as an individual, or Montefiore as an individual who fought for Jewish rights and fought against uh, discrimination and false accusations against Jews. Instead of that, we have this umbrella organization that includes all Jews, even though it basically was French, that will defend Jews wherever they are. Hire attorneys, investigators, will do whatever necessary groundwork in order to save Jews from these types of false accusations. It also will fight discrimination that Jews are entitled, that Jews were locked out of many positions, governments, army, etc. The Alliance would fight all of that to make Jews equal, etc. That was one purpose. The second purpose, which is more controversial and which remains a source of controversy until today, was that the Alliance created schools, mainly in the Middle East. Why in the Middle East? Because France already took over in Algeria as a colony and in Morocco. 
and as I mentioned it had great influence in Syria and in what is today Lebanon which then was part of Syria and the purpose of the schools was to take these poor Jews who have no culture who don't know anything about European society who can't speak French and to uh, so to speak civilize them to introduce uh, and this was especially true amongst the Sephardic Jews uh, so they would introduce culture they would teach them the French language in, but they had no Jewish studies per se in the curriculum of the Allianz schools naturally the Allianz schools therefore were opposed by the rabbinic establishments whether they be in Algeria and Morocco or whether they be here in the land of Israel there are still Allianz schools here in the land of Israel today I mean they've morphed into different things and they do have Jewish content today but uh, for instance there was a school here in Jerusalem that was uh, a battleground for decades between the the rabbis and the religious community and between those that wanted the school and sent their children to the school and the schools provided an excellent education and they were very attractive and people said if I want my child to get ahead I'm going to take him out of the Torah school because there he's not going to go anywhere in society and I'll put him in the Allianz school because in the Allianz school then he can become a lawyer, a doctor, whatever and be a success this was a battle in the 1800s was a battle in the 1900s and it's morphed into a different type of battle today but it's still the same battle when they speak today about core curriculum in all the schools all of that that's a continuity of this battle of what should a Jewish school look like where should its emphasis be what does it hope to produce so anyway he becomes the head of the Alliance and under him it grows enormously he is an excellent fundraiser as I mentioned he has uh, great skills persuasive an orator, a writer now he gets into trouble uh, he gets arrested in 1851 by, because of his uh, liberal politics he's very very liberal and uh, the emperor then uh, wants to uh, after the 1848 uh, rebellion etc wants to uh, stifle all opposition so he was arrested as being a uh, rabble rouser etc an insider that's a very difficult thing to prove by the way very very uh, thin ice that we skate on that you arrest somebody for inciting what does that mean especially in a society that proclaims itself that it has freedom of speech 
if you have freedom of speech, then what is inciting? But he was arrested and he was imprisoned. When he got out of prison, he retired from public life. Like for 19 years, we don't hear from him. Apparently, being imprisoned made an impression upon him. He didn't want to start again. But in 1870, he returns again. He returns to public life. He again is elected a deputy in the French Parliament. Uh, He uh, serves in a ministry. And he uh, does something, as I mentioned, with enormous foresight that no one saw at the time. No one realized at the time what was happening here. As I mentioned, Algeria became a uh, French colony. The French took it over. After a period of time, uh, the French government uh, not only uh, treated it as a colony, it treated it as part of France. This would, uh, this would last till the 1960s when de Gaulle uh, removed France from Algeria and Algeria became an independent country. But until then, it was one of the uh, counties, you know, like uh, like Provence or like Alsace-Lorraine or uh, Bordeaux, etc. So the Algeria was part of France. Now, who had the right of citizenship in Algeria? Because the right of citizenship meant that you weren't a citizen of Algeria, you were a citizen of France. And therefore, you could move to France. You could you had all the privileges that uh, French citizenship could bestow upon you. So originally, uh, that was reserved for the French, the French colonists who lived in Algeria. They had citizenship. The natives, meaning the Berbers, the Arabs that lived in Algeria, they had no rights of citizenship. What about the Jews? Because there was a large Jewish population that existed in France, I mean in Algeria. And Jews had lived there for centuries on end. Uh, So now were they uh, French or were they like the indigenous population. If they would be like the indigenous population, then they had no citizens. They were second-class citizens. They weren't allowed admittance into France, etc. Cremieux uh, was able to have a decree passed. It was called the Cremieux Decree, which said that Jews are Frenchmen. The Jews of Algeria have French citizenship. In other words, the Muslims, the Berbers, those who live there and have lived there for a millennia, they don't have citizenship. But the Jews have citizenship. And through his efforts, this decree gave Algerian Jews French citizenship. In the 1950s and 1960s, when the great uh, war in Algeria took place and when finally de Gaulle said France is going to leave so then 
uh, 95% of the French left Algeria and moved back to metropolitan France. That happened with the Jewish population in Algeria also. That's why they were like 500,000 Sephardic Jews that suddenly moved to France and became the Jewish community in France. And till today they are the Jewish community in France. And they could do so because of the fact they had French citizenship, which was the Cremieux decree. Now when he... Uh, when he uh, lobbied for it in the 1870s, nobody thought that France was ever going to leave Algeria, and it seemed to be a meaningless act. But uh, again, in terms of a half a million Jews, it changed their lives, uh, it saved them, and it had an enormous effect upon French Jewry as well. Now, uh, Cremio uh, was subject to uh, ridicule and caricature, as you can imagine. He's a public Jew in an anti-Semitic country, and when anti-Semitism was public, it was not something to be embarrassed about. In fact, it was a uh, political platform for many, many parties throughout Western Europe. So uh, there was a, an artist, uh, Damien, who uh, painted two caricatures of him uh, that were not very flattering, cartoons. And he had uh, tremendous circulation in the French media. So one of them uh, shows Cremieux entering a uh, house and he says to the owner of the house, why don't you take that awful portrait down? And the man in the house says, that's not a portrait, you're looking in a mirror. And then the uh, second one, uh, uh, the cartoon had uh, uh, that Cremieux says, I'm all for change, because that was... Uh, his politics was to change the conservative nature of the governments that existed. He said, I'm all for change. And the cartoonist writes, uh, he means to change what his face looks like. So this was how he was represented in the French media. So to the Jews, he's a hero. Uh, to the non-Jews in France, he is a caricature. He is someone that should be made fun of, and someone that should be despised. And uh, the Israeli himself, even though he converted, as we'll discuss, uh, whenever he got up to speak in the House of Commons, the backbenchers, he was a, he was a conservative, so the backbenchers, the liberals, would shout, old clothes for sale! because the Jews were peddlers and uh, that was uh, acceptable behavior so uh, Jews in the 19th century that rose to positions of prominence uh, suffered greatly 
That was true in the United States also, where Oscar Strauss became Secretary of Commerce. The uh, confirmation hearing was uh, replete with anti-Semitic remarks. Uh, how can a Jew uh, serve in the cabinet, etc., etc.? So uh, that's the milieu of the times, and in such a milieu, everything that he wanted to do on behalf of the Jews takes on a uh, a greater import because he is swimming upstream. Everything he's doing is against uh, the popular uh, conception. There were many Jews who said that he should, as there always are, that he shouldn't have been so vocal, that he shouldn't have pushed it, that to a great extent he brought it upon, he's not doing the Jews a favor. Now this is a problem that always exists. You know, there are too many Jews. You hear that uh, in the mikveh now, which is the source of all intelligent news. Uh, are there too many Jews about with Trump? What's the question? Too many. How many is too many? And why is the problem Jews? Why aren't there too many Protestants? Or too many Catholics? Or too many atheists? But that's never the question. And that question uh, in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries remains a basic question. Uh, Because Jews, so to speak, after 2,000 years of exile, we have that complex built into us. Who knows how long it'll take for it to get out of us. But it's part of us. So Crevio, even though he has done all of these wonderful things for the Jews... Uh, many of the Jews say, you know, we would be better off without Kremlin. We would have, you know, and, and this especially happens when the Dreyfus trial starts. Because then they look back and they say, you know, it's because of Kremlin that they're picking on Dreyfus. If Kremlin wouldn't have pushed it, so then this Dreyfus thing wouldn't have happened. Now, uh, when you play that game in history, what, what, you know, what could have been, what would have been, why, etc., that's a game that, uh, that really has no solution. There's no way out of that. There's no way to know. Uh, he dies in Paris. He's buried in the Jewish cemetery in Montparnasse, in uh, Paris. Uh, we have no idea if he ever had any family. Uh, I was unable to find anything regarding his family life generally or even if he was married and uh, he uh, he's one of these uh, figures that arises in Jewish history completely from the outside and somehow has a bearing on Jewish history so when the uh, government uh, commission that named streets in the German colony. Uh, so there's a little street there called Kremio. It's right off of Derech Beit Lechem. If you're not looking for it, you'll never see it. But it's there. And that, there are three streets in the land of Israel, Kremio. 
one in Tel Aviv, one in Jerusalem, one in Haifa. All three are in the former German colonies. And uh, because of that, uh, you know, uh, it's mentioned as a curio regarding uh, his lifetime that his only, the only memorial, I say, has no memorial in France. Uh, the only uh, the consistoire has naturally a memorial to him. The Alliance school system has a memorial to him. But the only uh, uh, memorial that, so to speak, uh, is really uh, permanent, let us put it that way, and really uh, brings his name to the fore are these streets uh, in Israel that are named on, in his memory. And the most uh, interesting one is here, I think, in the German colony here in Jerusalem, uh, named after Adolf Kremiot. He passed away in 1880. He's buried in the Montparnasse Cemetery in Paris, as I mentioned. He is remembered not only by the street, but by the things that he accomplished for the Jewish people and the individual Jews that he saved from death and from torture. I want to thank you all for coming tonight, and I hope to see you next Saturday night. JM in the AM, it's uh, the amazing Rabbi Beryl Wine. His lectures available, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com, another resource to check out all of his lectures and to enjoy really incredible um, insight into history. And so many other topics. Thursday morning broadcast. It's JM in the AM. My name is Nahum Siegel. It's July the 19th, day 7 in the month of Tammuz, the year 5778, Tavshinayin Ches. Make sure to wish a happy birthday to ZK if you see him today. That's right, the one and only ZK, our chief engineer. If you see him today, you wish him a happy birthday. And happy birthday to Yaakov Arbach. I think I forgot yesterday to mention that on the air, and I apologize. But Yaakov, a very, very happy birthday to you. From all of us here at the JM in the AM. Uh, Thursday morning with uh, our news from Israel coming up and, of course, plenty more. We will have um, some wonderful people with us in the second half of our broadcast this morning, including our friends at Camp Hask, including our friends from Project Inspire, including our friends from Nefesh Benefesh, all of whom are going to have an important role in our amazing July programming, which is coming up the last week in July. And uh, we are very much looking forward to it. It's going to be an amazing and incredible full week from about, uh, let's see, I'll say Wednesday through Tuesday, right? That would be it, Wednesday through Tuesday. Starting after Tishabov. So everybody out there, get ready. We will have a, uh, a wonderful and incredible an inspiring week of programming and uh, many of these special guests who have made it possible with us later on, including less than an hour from now, Rabbi Yoshua Fass, Nefesh Benefesh, as we get set for the big flight this uh, coming this coming Tuesday. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Yes, we have taken note of the um, Mark Zuckerberg declaration, supposedly, 
that um, Holocaust denial posts will not be removed from Facebook. We'll bring that up later in the week with Malcolm Holmline. He joins us tomorrow, actually, not just later in the week, but tomorrow at 740 Eastern time here at JM in the AM. Golly, it's on the background. Our news from Israel is coming up. I remind you again, we have an amazing week next week. But first, before we get there, this coming Tisha B'Av on Sunday, New Springville Jewish Center, live Tisha B'Av program with Kinos Explained and much, much more all starts at 9.15 this coming Sunday morning at NahumSiegel.com. Details coming up. Galit Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next to Jamie. Galit Tzal, מאסר עולם נגזר על שני המחבלים שרצחו את הרב ראובן שמרלינג, זיכרונו לברכה, בחג סוכות האחרון. המחבלים שתקפו את שמרלינג בכפר קאסם חויבו לפצות את משפחתו ב-260 אלף שקלים. כתבתנו מיכל צ'ין שמעה את עידית בצר, ביתו של הרב שמרלינג, בבית המשפט. בית המשפט נתן בגזר דינו את העונש המקסימלי שניתן להטיל כיום במדינת ישראל. על רוצחים שפלים. אנחנו סיימנו בזאת את הפרק של ההליך המשפטי נגד הרוצחים. פנינו להנצחה. אנחנו מקווים למצוא בזה קצת נחמה. יושב ראש הסתדרות העובדים אבי ניסנקורן הודיע כי הוא מאשר לעובדים הלהט"בים בהסתדרות לשבות כחלק מהמחאה נגד חוק הפונדקאות המתוכננת ביום ראשון. כתבתנו פיי גוטמן. בהודעת ההסתדרות נכתב והמאבק לשוויון זכויות של קהילת הלהט"ב הוא מאבק חשוב על פניה של החברה הישראלית וההסתדרות מתנגדת לכל אפליה. בנוסף לאישור לשבות הוציא ניסנקורן חוזר לכלל הוועדים ברחבי הארץ בו הוא קורא לוועדים וההנהלות לאפשר לעובדים המשתייכים לקהילה לקחת חלק במחאה מבלי לפגוע בזכויותיהם. צהרת הרב הקונסרבטיבי. היועץ המשפטי לממשלה הנחה שלא לזמנו לחקירה עד לבירור מעשיו. כתבתנו מוריה אסרף. הרב הקונסרבטיבי ניסים דוב חיו נעצר הבוקר וזומן לחקירת משטרה בחשד שירה חופות שלא במסגרת הרבנות. היועץ המשפטי לממשלה אביחי מנדלבליט פרסם הנחיה שלא לפתוח בחקירה פלילית נגד חיון עד אשר יתבררו מעשיו. עמיקם גורביץ', שכונה הקריין הלאומי, נפטר הבוקר בבית החולים איכילוב בתל אביב כשהוא בן 89. גורביץ' הקריא מאז שנות ה-60 את ה"יזכור" בטקסי הדלקת המסועות בהר הרצל, והנחה טקסים לאומיים רבים. ב-2009 זכה להדליק מסועה. הוא השאיר אחריו אישה, שני ילדים ושני נכדים. הבדרן היהודי-בריטי סשה ברון כהן מעורר סערה גדולה בארצות הברית. במסווה של יוצא צבא ישראלי הצליח ברון כהן לשכנע פוליטיקאים אמריקנים לתמוך בחימוש ילדים בגנים ובבתי הספר. חבר הקונגרס לשעבר ג'ו וולש, אחד הנמתחים, אמר בזעם בריאיון מיוחד ליומן החוץ של גלי צה"ל ברון כהן משמיץ את ישראל. הם שיקרו לי. הם הכניסו סיפור על ילד ישראלי בן חמש שעצר מחבל בעצמו ושבנימין נתניהו שיבח את הילד הזה. כולכם בישראל צריכים לכעוס על סשה ברון כהן שמבזה את המוניטין הטוב של ישראל. כך וולש. 
מזג האוויר, ירידה בטמפרטורות. בסוף השבוע ללא שינוי. אלה החדשות שעורכת גל ויצנר. I don't know to what degree we'll be able to um, complete this lecture today. We're going to try our best. I think in between our guests, we will, in fact, be able to, please God. Um, this is part four of Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, series um, that is entitled Jerusalem Geography. Jerusalem Geography. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his series at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and rabbiwine.com. Shavua Tov again. Tonight's uh, lecture is about uh, Binyomin of Tudela. Now there's a street here in Rechavia right at the beginning when you're coming up the hill. Uh, and the street morphs into Sadje Gaon, and eventually it becomes Ari, uh, as is the nature of Jerusalem streets, that one street can have many names after every few blocks. We have more people. We have a history of 4,000 years, so uh, there is a limited amount of streets, so we have to uh, double up or triple up on one street. The street here is known as Mitudela, but Mitudela means from Tudela. And the real name of the street is therefore Binyamin Mitudela, Benjamin of the city of Tudela. The streets in uh, Rechavia are basically named for Spanish Jews of uh, note and of history. So we have Ramban, we have uh, Ben Maimon, which is the Rambam, we have Alfasi, which is the Reef. We have Rajbo, Rabbeinu Shlomo ben Adaret. We have Ibn Ezra. We have Abar Benel. These are the streets uh, that are named for the great uh, Sephardic uh, scholars and leaders of Israel, uh, basically of the Middle Ages. We are on a street that is exceptional, called Usishkin. That is not Spanish in origin. But Usishkin was the head of the JNF, and he was one of the most powerful Zionist leaders. So originally this street was supposed to be named Yehuda Halevi, keeping in concert with the general overall plan of Rechavia. But uh, Usishkin had influence. And therefore, it became Usishkin. And Yehuda Alevi is the little, almost alleyway, which leads from Ramban to Karen Kayemet, the shortcut that people take, that go past Ben Svi. That's Yehuda Alevi. In any event, uh, Binyamin of Tudela is not known as a scholar, per se, though he was a knowledgeable Jew. He's known because of the fact that he 
went on a journey that began in 1159, in the 12th century, and ended in 1172. So it's a 13-year travelogue. And unlike other travelers, he wrote a book about his travels called Masa'e, The Travels of Binyomin Mitudela. And that book was a hit from the moment that it uh, appeared, both in Jewish and non-Jewish sources. And in many respects, it gives us the uh, clearest picture of what life was, both Jewish and non-Jewish, in the 12th century. Now, one of the interesting things about travel at that time is that you did not need a passport. There were no controls over travel. You could go wherever you wanted. And uh, also, uh, the borders were not uh, very clearly defined. There were more empires, the Holy Roman Empire, the Papal Empire, uh, the Turkish Empire, the Egyptian Empire. But those were all loosely defined so that uh, travel was, uh, to a great extent, much simpler than it is today. Certainly without the hassle that it is today. The only thing that the powers were interested in was uh, duty on imported goods. So uh, that usually came with caravans of animals, etc., and that they were able to control. But the individual traveler could go wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Now, travel was dangerous. It always is dangerous. And especially uh, Jewish travel uh, carried risks with it. But uh, he uh, apparently uh, not only was not afraid, he apparently didn't have any negative experiences. And in his book, which we're going to follow him around the Jewish world, he's called uh, the Marco Polo of the Jewish world, though he lived 100 years before Marco Polo. So Marco Polo is really the Benjamin of Tudela of the non-Jewish world. But but be that as it may, uh, he's a fabulous person, uh, certainly out of the box, not uh, what would be expected. And he records what he sees, and he gives his opinion. And uh, much of what he says is really uh, fascinating for us. Now, Tudela is a town in northern Spain, in Aragon. And uh, there were those Jews that confused Tudela with Toledo, because Jews always changed the name of the town they lived in anyway. They, so to speak, Hebraicized it or they changed it. But that isn't what happened here. Tudela is a real town, and it's a real town in northern Spain. And uh, Toledo is near Madrid, and that was a big city. It was a capital of Spain. 
and it had many great Rabbonim, the Rosh was the Rav in Toledo. Anyway, he leaves Tadella in the, the year 1159, and he uh, first travels to Barcelona. Now, Barcelona was and is a major Spanish city, but it does not see itself as being part of Spain even till today. It's in a province called Catalonia. Uh, The language is different. The dialect is different. The customs are different. There's always a danger of that area breaking away from Spain and becoming independent. But in the the 12th century, it was like going to a different country because there was Granada, uh, there was uh, the uh, southern part of Spain where Seville was, there was Cordova. So you're not looking at Spain as one unified country. It's a bunch of little countries. And... uh, mostly under Muslim rule, but the northern part was Christian. Barcelona was Christian, and Tudela was Christian. And there was an uneasy uh, truce between the Christians and the Muslims. The Christians eventually would push the Muslims out of Spain. As long as the Muslims were there, somehow the Jews were protected even though the Muslims also had radical Islamists that persecuted the Jews. And especially at this period of time, the Almohads, which uh, today has morphed into Al-Qaeda or whatever uh, groupings, whatever names, ISIS, but it's the same thing. They're fanatical Muslims who cannot tolerate infidels in their midst so they are the ones that expelled the Rambam and his father and brother from Cordova all of this is in the same time that Benjamin of Tudela is around but he's in northern Spain he's in Christian Spain he goes from Tudela to Barcelona Barcelona is a big city Now, big cities in the Middle Ages are today small cities. You're not talking about the populations that we had, as we'll see when he describes Jewish communities that he came to. Uh, But a city of 10,000 people was a big city, a very big city. And in Barcelona, there was a sizable Jewish community. Now, Barcelona is in northern Spain, just south of the Pyrenees Mountains. North of the Pyrenees Mountains, there is an area which today belongs to France, but in the 12th century was an independent area by itself called Provence. Now, Provence is from the Roman word. The Romans colonized it. And Provence had a very interesting mix of Jews. Those Jews were not Ashkenaz, and they were not Svarad. They were Provence, Provençal. They had a different language, 
and they had a different way of studying the Talmud and they had a different world view Provence is the area where the great dispute regarding the works of the Rambam occurred the greatest defenders of the Rambam were in Provence the greatest critics of the Rambam were in Provence and the Provencal Jews uh, were always uh, they had a spice to them they weren't the bland people so for instance uh, Rabbeinu Avraham ben David Rivad there is a, a little passageway here that leads from Ben Maimon to Aza if you've never had the pleasure of walking there and that's called Mavo Harivad. that's named for the Rivad it's very interesting because it intersects the Rambam which is exactly what he did (laughs) (coughs) because he wrote the basic critique on the Mishnah Torah that the Rambam wrote and his critique even though uh, he agreed with the Rambam 90% of the time but on the 10% that he didn't agree with those critiques are published in almost every volume of the Rambam side by side with the Rambam he was the Rav in a town called Posquares I'm pronouncing it incorrectly but uh, my French has deteriorated over the years his town Benjamin of Tudela visits his town and has 40 we don't know whether he means 40 Jews or 40 Jewish households but anyway it's one building in Wolfson okay (laughs) and he says it's a town of scholars who are always debating and arguing with each other and it's a great place of Torah 40 people hardly get a minion but from Barcelona he goes to Provence that's his first stop after Barcelona Barcelona will later become famous because of the Ramban who originally was in Girona which is near Barcelona and then ends up in Barcelona before he comes to the land of Israel if you go to Barcelona today uh, it's a beautiful city different type of city and uh, there are relics of uh, the Jewish community but uh, after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain almost all Jewish history from the Middle Ages has been erased and what the tour guides show you is uh, you know there's something called fantasy football Right, where you pretend that you own a football team and play so that's uh, the tourist industry uh, uh, is a great fan of fantasy football as well certainly the uh, cobblestones that you walk on probably are the same cobblestones that our ancestors walked on many many centuries ago but there's no uh, there's really no Jewish remnant of that period in Barcelona in Provence so these Provencal Jews first of all they had their own ritual of prayer it's not in the Sahashkenaz 
not Nusach Svard. It's Nusach Provence. And they were called the Chachme Provence, the wise men of Provence. The Rambam held from them enormously. He uh, he wrote the there's a famous uh, let's see if I can get this organized the Provençal Jews named themselves after the towns that they came from but what happened was they Hebraicized the names so for instance if you came from the town of Lunel which is lunar, the moon so you called yourself Hayarchi from the word Ayureach. That's where all the Ayarchis come from. And if you came from Floer, which means flower, so then you called yourself Haparchi. And if you came from a town that was named for the flour mill, uh, from the grain, so you called yourself Kimchi. And all of those names are Provençal names, and that's how they developed those names, because they named it after either the town that they came from or the industry that was in the town, etc. So they have Hazarchi, because they came from a town that represented the sun, Shimshi. It's a fascinating thing, unlike any other Jewish community. Uh, who uh, existed at the time. They were individuals. So in Lunel, Lunel was the major Jewish city. He says that there were 300 households in the city. He said, Irgdola, a great city, Shloshmeo says 300 Jewish families. Well, we, 300 Jewish families is a shtetl, right? But in the Middle Ages, that was an Ir And that was the main Jewish city in Provence. And the Rov in the town, none of the Rabonim at that time uh, served for uh, a salary. Everyone did something else. Uh, so he was Rebionis Anakoin. The famous Rebionis Anakoin Milunil. And the Rivet wrote about him, HaKohen HaGodol Me'echov, the greatest Kohen that we have. Now for the Rivet to say that, because the Rivet took no prisoners. Uh, so then you're talking about the major, major scholar in, in Torah. And the Rambam wrote to the Chachmei Lumlil, and they answered him, and he wrote back and forth to them, and he explained many things, and they asked him many questions. A whole, there's a whole literature of the Rambam's correspondence with the Chachmei Lumlil, and the Chachmei Provence generally. The Rambam had a great critic in Provence, who, uh, was the Yad Ramah, Rameir Abulafia, who was a Rov in Provence, and he led the charge against uh, the Moer Nevuchim, against the Rambam's philosophy, and against the Sefer Hamado. He was a very severe critic. We have his works, uh, he has a parish to Baba Basra, 
and a parish to Sanhedrin uh, that is still studied in the yeshivas but uh, uh, the dispute has disappeared over the uh, centuries as most disputes disappear and uh, he's not remembered for uh, his critique on the Rambam he's remembered for the great uh, commentaries to the Talmud that he wrote so Provence was the cockpit of this great great dispute and later when the Rambam's works will be burned that will be at the instigation of Provencal people who disagreed with the Rambam and who uh, therefore uh, informed the Catholic Church about him and about his works that they were heretical and that therefore the church uh, chose to burn them under Jewish auspices but that's a whole different story he doesn't record that but he travels to Provence and he's fascinated by the Provencal Jews and he writes how he spent the Shabbos here and the Shabbos there and the Shabbos there he was about five towns all of which were minuscule by our he's in a town with a hundred people he says an interesting thing which you can see today he was also in Avignon where uh, the papal palace was later you know there was a period when there were two popes and even three popes now the French Pope was for 70 years in Avignon uh, if you go to Provence today you can see the papal palace so he writes that the Jews always lived near the cathedral or the papal palaces because that was the safest place in town for them because even though the church was inimical and many times instigated the troubles somehow uh, the uh, clergy that were in charge of the cathedral or in charge of the papal palace etc always attempted to protect the Jews from the rampages of the mob so uh, that's true in Italy too if you travel in the Italian cities and you see the ancient areas you'll see that the Jews were always near the church always near the cathedral always near the cardinal's residence they didn't live in the suburbs that's an American invention so from Provence now uh, he takes a boat he goes to Marseille which is the port in southern France it's really uh, borders on Provence it's a question whether Marseille itself is Provençal but there was a Jewish community in Marseille and he said the Jews there were fishermen that was their uh, uh, their profession and also that they were the stevedores on the docks of loading the ships we don't think of Jews in those professions because we were in landlocked Poland for a thousand years so uh, that couldn't be what we were but Jews were whatever 
the economy allowed, whatever the circumstances allowed. And if you're uh, living by the ocean and you're in a port, so then that naturally would be the place where they would try and gain employment. So for Marseille, he takes a boat and he comes to Italy. So the tour now is Tudela, Barcelona, Provence, now he comes to Italy. Now Italy is not a country either. Italy is 25, 50 different uh, countries. There's the Duke of Milan, and there's the Duke of Venice, and there's Florence, and Pizza, and uh, Pisa, excuse me, there's Pizza also. <laughs> Somebody told me a, a typical Israeli uh, retort, he called up a handyman to come quickly and uh, fix something that was uh, leaking, broken, whatever. She says, come right away. He says, what do you think I am? A pizza place? pizzeria? <laughs> I'll come tomorrow. <laughs> Welcome to the Middle East. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, he comes to Italy. Now, in Italy, it's a different type of Jew. Also not Svard, not Ashkenaz, not Provençal. Now, we're not accustomed to that. J.M. in the A.M. on a Thursday morning broadcast. Rabbi Beryl Wines, amazing lectures for us during the nine days at 1-800-499-WEIN. 1-800-499-WEIN. And, of course, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN. Com. More coming up on JM in the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Rav Zevin, and Zechonishmas Esther Basar, here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We learn in Chazal, Hashem will say to Yitzchuk, your children have sinned against me. Yitzchuk will answer, are they my children and not your children? When they proceeded to say Nasa Venishma, you called them Bini Bechayri, my children, my firstborn. Additionally, how much did they sin? The Gemara here is talking about the future. In the future, Yitzhak will say to Hashem, Grant atonement for the Averis of Bnei Yisrael. I brought myself as a korban at the Akedah. I gave atonement in the schus that I brought myself and did not protest the Akedah. The Eshkodesh asks, why is it that only in the future Yitzchak will come with this argument for Bnei Yisrael? Why doesn't he come at the time of the Chorban, when aside from the Chorban Anora, where thousands of Jews were killed? Why didn't Yitzchak come then? In the schus of Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Yitzchak, we could have been saved. Why didn't Yitzchak come at a time when the Beis Hamikdash was about to be destroyed? and ask that Hashem is merachim on us. Perhaps the kavano of Chazal was not for the future in Achris Hayomim, but rather, maybe it was during the Shoah, the Holocaust that passed over our people some decades ago. Millions of Yidin, men, women, and children, were annihilated and tortured. If you think about it, 
there's a great hevdel, a difference, between those that died Al-Kiddush Hashem in the earlier days, the Kedosh Shoah, then during the Inquisition, or the Gezeros Tach V'tat. The Jews had a choice. Either they could give up their religion or die. Because of their amuna, their choice to live the eternal life, they went to their death with the idea brura, the clear knowledge that they were dedicating their lives al-Kiddush Hashem. In the case of the Shoah, the Holocaust, the Nazis were not interested in anything. Any Jew, even if only his grandfather or great-grandfather was Jewish, he was sent to the death. No matter if he reject his religion, bow down to Avodazara or anything else, the Jews had no choice. They were Mekadei Shem Shomayim. They dedicated their lives to Hashem without any question or choice. It is possible that perhaps the Mekatrig would come and say that their death did not have a great kapara. The Jews of other times they made the choice, and they went to their deaths. But the Jews of the Holocaust simply had no choice. By Yitzchak, it was exactly the opposite. He very much wanted to be makriv himself, to put himself on the altar of Kiddush Hashem. But at the end, the angel came and prevented the shechita. Yitzchak comes and says, I want to combine my ratzon, my great will to be Mekadei Shem Shomayim, that I did without a Misa, I was prevented, to the deeds of those that died in the Holocaust, those great Kedoshim, that they should be a Kapara for B'nai Yisrael. Especially in today's day and age, where there are so many Holocaust deniers, we remember the cries, we remember the Shema Yisrael, of millions of Jews that were Nerug al-Kiddush Hashem, that gave their life for the sake of God. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. and A.M. Thursday, since it's the nine days, we will um, forego our usual theme song for our very special guest who is with us live via telephone. I have been uh, mentioning to you, this wonderful audience, for weeks how the end of July is going to turn this month for us into one incredible one, even though it's dominated this month by the three weeks. Once the three weeks end and we uh, are done with Tisha B'Av, which is this, uh, which is being observed this coming Sunday, uh, we're going to be embarking on some incredible programming here at the Nahum Siegel Network, including, including Wednesday morning of this coming week when JM and the AM will be our broadcast, our three our broadcast from the Nefesh Benefesh charter flight from John F. Kennedy Airport all the way to Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. It'll be carrying hundreds of people. It will be uh, bringing North American Jews from God knows how many states and how many areas around this continent to Israel permanently. And all of it, of course, is being done under the uh, leadership of Rabbi Yeshua Fass and the incredible work of Nefesh Benefesh with us live via telephone. From Israel, he is the uh, co-founder of the Nefesh Benefesh organization and its leader, and that's Rabbi Yoshua Fass, who's with us live via telephone. Rabbi Fass, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much, Nachum, and your listeners. It's great to be on. Good morning. Greatly appreciate that. You probably hear the smile in my voice whenever you're on the other end of the phone. 
You know, you uh, mentioned to me off the air moments ago that every flight has its own personality. I'm not nearly the veteran of all these flights as you are. I've only been on a few compared to you who've been on all of them. Um, but uh, but I do understand what you mean by each flight having its own personality. You seem to have some type of advance notice or advance analysis already before Tuesday's flight about what to expect in the air on Tuesday. What would you say about this specific upcoming July charter flight to Israel? Just pack one thing, Nachum, earplugs. <laughs> it's going to be one of those, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to be one of those no-sleep flights, except to ride fast. He manages an hour or two usually. <laughs> I get that hour. I sneak at that hour when no one's bothering me. Now you're, um, you Go ahead. This is flight number 58. Wow. And this flight... Um, contains the most children on any <gasps> charter flight in our history in the last 16 years. Ever? We have 127 Ever? kids on this plane. Uh, it's, like a, it's like a school. <laughs> that's <laughs> unbelievable. That is 127 kids. I cannot believe that it's the most ever of any charter flight. Yeah, no, it's it's almost half the plane. That is absolutely amazing. 127 kids. Wow. Imagine the per- yep. imagine the person sitting in the center of like 10 of them. <laughs> That's all of us. That's everybody. Just imagine the, the back of your seat. The entire plane. <laughs> the entire every, they'll be kicking going on in the back of every seat on the plane basically. Statistically <laughs> they're kicking another kid, but it's okay. <laughs> That's true. I never thought of that. They might be able to keep it within themselves. Uh, This is pretty remarkable. 127 kids, yet another flight. And I would assume, and this is one of the points I always love to make with you in advance of the flight, I would assume that the tens of states and provinces in North America are represented this coming Tuesday. How many do you think? Do you have the statistics in terms of states? Sure. We have. We have, I think, 20 different places where they're coming from. That's unbelievable. Twenty and, pe- and people in this audience don't realize it. They just don't realize how so many folks... There are two things. There are two things that, that we often don't realize. First of all, they're coming... I'll read it to you. It's crazy. They're coming from Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, of course, Ohio, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Texas, and Washington. Clearly and over Quebec. 20. Clearly over 20. Yeah. Wow. And the amazing thing is that people always ask me when I'm coming into the States, so you have two flights this summer? People don't realize that within an eight-week period, 2,000 North Americans make Aliyah. So this is, this is intense. So a flight, this flight on Wednesday is 232 people, but it's just 10% really of what's happening over eight-week period. So there's, there's a lot going on in the summer. Um, and uh, we pause for those three days of dealing with a charter, but then business as usual right afterwards and right beforehand of just bringing group upon group of people and individual flights. So a lot is happening over a summer over a summer period. Um, according to this, back in the very, very beginning of July, on a Tuesday, you welcomed 98 brand-new Olim, just giving an example of what you yeah. mean. Outside, yep. of the, uh, outside of the charter flights, five different LL flights carrying Olim from Toronto, Miami, L.A., JFK, and Newark arrived at Ben Grion Airport that day. The Newark flight had 74 Olim, and the youngest was eight months old. And, these, and like you said, this is, this is typical of what's happening outside of these really large charter flights that all of us 
concentrate on every single summer. Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing, yeah. frankly. Uh, Rabbi Fass is with us. We're live. Uh, he's live from uh, Yerushalayim, getting ready to come into the New York area and fly Tuesday. Our program on Wednesday morning will, in fact, be a three-hour broadcast from the flight. I've already been informed that there are some remarkable stories and some incredible people to meet. Uh, we, of course, are always amazed by the uh, the geography is not a small point because very often, especially this audience uh, and especially those who are you know New York, New Jersey centric, don't realize just how much attention is being paid to Aliyah among Jews around the country and among Jews who may not have the same background as uh, as we're used to, who are not you know day school educated, etc. In fact, you've already met some this summer that are public school kids that have a tremendous affinity to Israel, correct? Yeah. There's yeah. an internship program here in Israel. We have a couple who are working with us here in Yerushalayim. Now, it's amazing. People don't realize, uh, obviously, the diversity of the affinity to Israel and diversity of the populations that, of who are making Aliyah. And I always love the fact that I, I think that Aliyah has prides itself as a factor, as a unifying factor. And you see that on the plane, you walk through the plane and you see people just creating relationships and talking and speaking to each other and taking each other's numbers to, to be, build friendships once they, once they land. And there are different walks of life, and it's a beautiful thing because they have the same kind of passion, they have the same kind of uh, concerns and needs and desires and dreams, and, uh, and it connects them, and it's a beautiful thing. And you see them a year later or two years later on one of our Sukkot picnics, and, and they forged a relationship from the flight, and they reunite and reconnect, and it's, it's beautiful. You know, you, um, you've always said to me, both publicly and privately, that every one of these uh, ceremonies at Kennedy Airport, um, for you, it's invigorating. It's like a fresh experience, even though this will be the 58th time that you're presiding over this ceremony, and uh, and I know that you're invigorated by it, and that you you know then that's you know you you can see just how joyous a uh, an experience it is for you and your staff. What is it when you see the lone soldiers or families, grandchildren, who are in that Kennedy Airport area and separating from their grandparents, their parents, etc.? How how do you view that whole experience? That's a loaded question, Alham. <laughs> there are a lot of different emotions, and and there's the micro emotion, there's the macro emotion. The micro emotion is that when you see um, individuals that you've been in touch with for years, planning, dreaming, uh, orchestrating the salia, and you see it, and you're there at that day, at that moment, it, it's a remarkable feeling. It's a remarkable feeling of sensing the satisfaction of these individuals and the excitement. Um, you've seen them date almost Aliyah for a few years, and now it's their marriage day, yeah. and it's and it's beautiful to see that that happening. Uh, on a micro level, it, it it you you always shed a tear to see all the farewells and the hugs and kisses and the the blessings, the brachot that are being done from parent to child and grandparent to grandchild, and that always um, tugs at one's heart. And you see, and when you see lone soldiers, you're taken by that micro snippet of seeing just the bravery and the courage and the, just the independence and the strength and conviction of individuals. It blows you away. And then you have the macro picture of just of, of pausing for a second. Uh, we, 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 we often go through life without appreciating what we have. Um, almost all of our lives, that we don't appreciate what we have, <laughs> and and I and that happens personally, and also happens nationally. 
and nationally just to pause for a second and just to take it all in. And, and I say this at the JFK. You've been at many, uh, and I think I say this almost at all of them. Just pause for a second and just take it in the enormity of the moment. It's just outstanding. And just marvel at that miracle of being able to get on a plane and move to Israel. We're not talking about trekking through the Sudan. We're not talking about going through the Alps. We're not. To, and it's just we're not talking about risking one's life by asking for an Israeli visa. You can get on a plane and 12 hours later become an Israeli Israel. It's miraculous. Two things. And, uh, two things I must say. First of all, I will do. I'll also do a micro and a macro. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, on the micro level. I wonder how many thoughts are in the back of your head as you look at the preda, as you look at the uh, farewell, yeah, farewell between parent and child. I wonder how often you're thinking in the back of your mind, oh, I hate to tell you, older generation, but this younger generation is going to be pulling you to the Holy Land very, very soon. You, th you think you're saying goodbye and just think you're saying goodbye for a while? Just watch. You're going to be on the next plane or the one after that or the summer after that, right? I would bet that that comes across your mind once I think, in a while. I think Tony Gilbert says that explicitly in his speech <laughs> at this point. See you guys next year. Don't cry too much. We'll save you a seat. And the, and the other thing is, and this time of the year especially, you know, we're, we're, we're learning, we're studying Jewish history together this week. That's what we do here at JMDAM. And so many listeners are, are appreciating what Rabbi Wine and others have to say. And think about just moments ago, we were hearing about how Jews were forced to convert. How yeah. Jews, I mean, and I'm not, I won't even go into the massacres and what Jews have had to endure over the centuries and in Galut, but where Jews had, had no choice but to convert in order to live and had to make a commitment to be Christian or to be Muslim or whatever the case was and all this stuff and the, the trials and tribulations they went through just to get through that experience and to please God end up still being Jewish at the end. And and today, as you talk about, you know, taking it for granted on a macro level, look what we have. Not only don't we have to suffer through the types of things that our ancestors did for hundreds of years, but we have an incredible state, a wonderful homeland, a fantastic place to live free, to enjoy our people, our religion, the growth of the Jewish world. And on top of that, one more step, and this I guarantee you we'll speak about on the plane on the air that the entire world is at the feet of the leaders of Israel now. It's not just that we are, thank God, not being forced to convert, but at this point, world leaders are showing up on Israel's doorstep for the latest in technology, for the latest advice, and to forge a friendly relationship. I, I would hope people would get that whole concept as all of this is happening with North American Aliyah. Miraculous times. It is simply amazing. Anyway, so there you have it. So we're that's all, we'll speak about on the plan. Oh uh, yeah, that's going to be a big. That's going to be a big theme. That's going to be a big, especially. So I'm not getting a nap. Especially, I would hope not. <laughs> especially for you, by the way, because you've seen a lot of these leaders. You've been to a lot of these meetings. You've experienced, yeah. you know, what you, you you've been able to speak to Israeli officials and find out what their thoughts are after all these encounters take place. Yeah, and and it's simply remarkable. The whole thing is incredible. I mean, you think about it historically. It's just you know, we talk about you and Tony and the you know the the mark you've made historically in Jewish history. With this organization, obviously nobody's denying that, but it's really a, a piece. I don't want to say small piece, but it's a piece of such a bigger picture that's going on now. It's just remarkable. Thank anyway, you. there you have it. That, Thank you. There you have my smile and my enthusiasm. I'm telling you, you got me so revved up now. I, oh, you better I, be revved I, up. You have no idea. You have no idea. 
<laughs> I, uh, the first flight of the summer, the first charter flight always gets us into it. Just It creates that momentum for, right. the, for the summer, and we all, we're all charged. I mean, the entire, entire staff is flying out right after Tisha B'Av, and uh, it's going to be... Um, it's a, it'll be a tikkun, a beginning of uh, of hopefully bringing a time that we do not have a tishabov. Hopefully, there won't even be a tishabov this year. Oh, that and, is for uh, sure. And I was telling the kids the other day, it's it's fascinating that in in religious observance or in life, we try to have the sume rava asetov, right? There's always this restriction, the balance, that fine balance of withdrawing and having the prohibitions and restrictions at the same time. Right doing the asetov of the commandments of trying to do something positive. And during these times, the three weeks and nine days in Tisha B'av, we so focus and we're consumed by all these negatives, the restrictions, the prohibitions, the refraining, the, the concept of avelut, of mourning, and how many think about creating that balance of the asetov, of what do we do besides mourn? What do we do so we don't have to mourn anymore? And and it's remarkable to to be part and to see and to witness. And you'll be next week with individuals who are viscerally connected to that concept and are changing their lives and the future generations so that they can do the Aseitov. How do we make sure that we do not have a Tishabov next year? And that's we're building, we're rebuilding the you know, Eretz Israel. And half of them are kids, as you said. Half of them are kids who are doing oh, this. Oh, I, I love it. I love it. The kids are fantastic. Noisy, but fantastic. Unbelievable. The whole thing is incredible. Everybody fast. I look forward to seeing you Tuesday. Can't wait. Look forward to an amazing show. I ready. I'm, I'm try. I I was about to bring up two more topics with you now, but I said no. We're gonna save it. No, we for- also have some good surprises. So the more we talk, <laughs> I'll, I'll probably spill it. I already got two notes. Please don't talk about this. So I'm not going to talk about it. I love it. And you know who's slipping me the notes. That's no, okay. You can say that again. Um, how, you must know Rabbi Katz, uh, Rabbi Katz from Malev HaTorah. I would assume you know him, right? Sure. Uh, from Harnov. He he spoke in at, at a Shabbat that I was at at the Stanford, Connecticut two weeks ago. I'm, I will share his thoughts with you uh, on the plane, Bezrat Hashem. Uh, coming up on uh, Tuesday, and then of course Wednesday's JM the M. So yet yet another teaser for this beloved audience. How do you like that? Yeah, we also get to celebrate Rabbi Brander's Aliyah together, That's which will be right. Which is like a full circle for us. It's going to be extremely emotional for I mean, everyone I mean, involved. I mean, for me, it, not only do I know him for close to 40 years, which is you know that's one part of it, but we have worked so well. And in, and side by side with so many different things over the years, it's going to be a, a remarkable feeling escorting him, so to speak, uh, yeah. to Israel on that flight. He and his family. Amazing. Yeah. All right. So much to do. So many things on the list. I can't wait. Uh, it, it, uh, have an easy fast. You too. A safe, tr- a safe trip here. We will see you Tuesday at the JFK airport. Can't we, wait. Uh, Looking I, forward. I cannot wait as well. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is incredible. This is incredible. This is incredible. Wow. Wow. I never thought I could possibly, possibly get this excited again about about my, uh, what do we call it? Falia, right? The fake Aliyah that we are making again for the sixth, seventh time, whatever it is. I cannot wait to get on that flight and to join all these amazing, and Rabbi Fast just reminded me, of course, about Rabbi Brander, who is, of course, on our list, as you would imagine. I just, you know. You know me. Once I get into the heat of the discussion, I forget everything. <laughs> but my Brander, of course, is going to be with us during that show. I have a whole list of stuff I want to bring up. 
with Rabbi Fess and our guests uh, that I've been uh, either thinking about or coming across the last few weeks and months. <sighs> Do yourselves a favor, everybody. Believe me, you want to tune in on Sunday for our Tisha B'Av programming. That's for sure. We told you, New Springville Jewish Center most of the day, Project Inspire at night before the fast ends. You want to be tuned in Monday when we get back to our regular format, for sure. Who wouldn't want to be tuned into all the great music? You want to be tuned in Tuesday before I head to the airport. But boy, do you want to be tuned in Wednesday? Do you want to be tuned in Wednesday? Circle your calendar. Do whatever you do. Whatever they do with these iPhones and fancy phones now. They don't circle calendars anymore, do they? <laughs> whatever alerts and alarms you have to set, do it. You are going to want to hear on Wednesday discussion after discussion after discussion that will inspire you not only to possibly make Aliyah, but inspire you in terms of what the Jewish people are now in 2018. Make sure you're tuned in. Wednesday morning, 6 a.m. until 9 a.m. Quote-unquote live from the flight. Hey, 127. Isn't that a significant number in Jewish history? Rabbi Fast mentioned 127 children on the flight. Well, one thing is good. I won't be able to forget that number now <laughs> because it's 127. I'll remember it without looking at my notes, which is a big benefit. <sighs> Cannot wait. Just can't wait. All right. Uh, we have other special guests who are going to be coming up and joining us on a, um, on a what's today, Thursday morning broadcast. Let's try to continue with our barrel wine. He's in the middle of a lecture about Benjamin of Tudela in a series entitled Jerusalem Geography. And you are listening to JM in the AM. Always near the church, always near the cathedral, always near the cardinal's residence. They didn't live in the suburbs. That's an American invention. So from Provence now, uh, he takes a boat. He goes to Marseille, which is the port in southern France. It really uh, borders on Provence. It's a question whether Marseille itself is Provençal. But there was a Jewish community in Marseille. And he said the Jews there were fishermen. That was their uh, uh, their profession, and also that they were the stevedores on the docks of loading the ships. We don't think of Jews in those professions because we were in landlocked Poland for a thousand years, so uh, that couldn't be what we were. But Jews were whatever. The economy allowed whatever the circumstances allowed. And if you're uh, living by the ocean and you're in a port, so then that naturally would be the place where they would try and gain employment. So for Marseille, he takes a boat and he comes to Italy. So the tour now is to Della, Barcelona, Provence. Now he comes to Italy. Now, Italy is not a country either. Italy is 25, 50 different uh, countries. 
there's the Duke of Milan, and there's the Duke of Venice, and there's Florence, and pizza, and oh, pizza, excuse me, there's pizza also. <laughs> Somebody told me a, a typical Israeli uh, retort, he called up a handyman to come quickly and uh, fix something that was uh, leaking, broken, whatever. So he says, come right away. He says, what do you think I am? A pizza place? pizzeria? I'll come tomorrow. Welcome to the Middle East. So uh, the, uh, he comes to Italy. Now, in Italy, it's a different type of Jew. Also not Svard, not Ashkenaz, not Provençal. Now, we're not accustomed to that. We're Jew, you know, but we, even Ashkenaz and Edos, Amizroch, etc., uh, we find hard to digest. But here you have very different types of Jews. The Jews in Italy... And later he's going to travel to Rome, but he's in northern, he's in Tuscany first, which was uh, very heavily Jewish, not in terms of population, but there were Jews in every little place there. Bergamo, etc. There were always little Jewish communities. So uh, the Italian Jews have an old history that they came there in Roman times. They were brought to slaves, and then they were freedmen, and they stayed in Italy. They also have their own ritual of prayer, Nusach Romani, which is not Ashkenaz, and not Svard, and not Provençal. I remember I, I davened once with them when I was in Italy, and it's very hard to know where you're at. It's a different ritual completely. There are certain things that are basic. The the Shema and the uh, Amidah, the Shmon Esrei, etc. That's basic, but uh, there are certain things that are... uh, The Psuket Zimra are not at all like ours. Many things are different. And even the Nusach of the Kaddish is different. And they say that they're the original Jews, right? These guys don't know anything, right? We're the ones that came here. We're from the beginning. There were uh, great uh, uh, scholars in Italy. Uh, some of the Balitosis were from Italy. And he will travel throughout Italy. He'll go all the way from the north to the boot of Italy. He ends up in Bari and in Otranto which are the heel of the boot of Italy. And naturally, he'll then go to Sicily, we'll see. In uh, Trani, which is a town in the bottom, there's a great family of Italian Talmide Chachomim. Uh, the founder of the family is Tosfos Reed, Reish Yudalid. That's Rabbi Yeshayo de Trani, from Trani. It's like Mitudela, except in Aramaic, instead of the Mem, it's a Dalit. Tosus Reed studied together with Rabbeinu Tam in, uh, in the yeshivas of the Tosafists. 
in the generation after Rashi. And uh, I'll tell you a few interesting things about him. First of all, Rabbeinu Tam writes him a letter, and he compliments him. We will continue with more of Rabbi Wine. He is uh, carrying us through an amazing and incredible um, a look at Jewish history, in this case the uh, series entitled uh, Jerusalem Geography. He's speaking about the streets of Jerusalem, and in this case discussing Binyamin of Tudela. 8 o'clock in the morning, it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com. On the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Well, I've been talking about this for weeks, no exaggeration. Coming up, the final week of July is going to turn this month, at least the secular month for us, uh, from the observance of the three weeks and nine days into an amazing and incredible celebration. You know about our journey to Israel. We just discussed that a few, discussed that a few minutes ago. When we get back, we are almost immediately concluding our amazing on-the-road journey this summer by heading Sunday morning, the 29th of July, to Camp Hask, Parksville, New York. It's been a couple of years since we've been up there in Parksville, but we will be up there in Parksville, New York, on the 29th of July for an amazing and incredible day called the Hask Experience Day. By the way, we're not the only ones. You're allowed and you're welcome to come as well. Not yet, not just allowed, you're welcome. The gates will be open. Uh, you can uh, you can see and meet the amazing staff and incredible campers of Camp Hask. You could also uh, see the amazing and incredible campus, how beautiful it is up there in Parksville. And in addition to that, and I don't want to make a big deal about this yet because it's obviously it has not yet started, but in addition to all of that, on that Sunday, July 29th, Hask is uh, opening up an incredible effort where every donation that they receive on that day and the next day, Monday the 30th, is going to be quadrupled. And we're going to encourage everybody all through that morning, all through that afternoon, all through Sunday and Monday to help raise as much money as possible for Hask. Now, who are the people who are with us live via telephone? They are people who rarely have an opportunity to hop on a phone call during the summer because of how busy they are. In fact, traditionally, we wouldn't bother them until the buses leave camp toward the end of August. But we want to find out what's happening up there in camp. And, of course, we want to do a little uh, inviting of our public, of our amazing listeners, to the Hask Experience Day. So with us live via telephone, the executive director, of Camp Hasker by Judah Michelle. Rabbi Michelle, welcome back to JM in the AM. How are you, Nachum? Baruch Hashem. And the program director and boys head counselor has been with us as well many times before. Avi Pollock is with us. Avi, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning. A glorious day here in Parksville. By the way, no joke, unless things are different in the camps that I'm uh, used to going to, you've had some amazing weather this summer, right? We've had some amazing weather. We've endured some extremely hot weather as well. Oh, I forgot. That's right. You guys don't consider the really hot weather amazing. I'm sorry about that. I usually do. But yeah, that could be a little taxing and a little difficult. But nonetheless, it's been pretty nice up there, I'm sure. And everybody up at Camp Hask, I bet, is enjoying an amazing and incredible summer. Tell us about the first couple of weeks. How have things been going so far? Uh, every single day here is uh, is jam-packed with uh, 
activities, with our academic program, with our therapy program, with uh, counselors and campers getting to know each other, working together. It's extraordinary. It, it blows our mind every year how quickly, how quickly and counterintuitively uh, everybody just begins to click. All right, now one second. I promise you both, I have, I'm have. i not cheating. I don't have any, I didn't go to any websites. I don't have any paper in front of me that would say it. Let me guess. Today is what? Clown Day, Superhero Day, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, Athlete Day, Singers Day. Like, what, what are we doing today in camp that's extra special? Yes. <laughs> all, all of those things. All of it, right? Every day they wake up, there's something else, somebody else to dress up as and something else to do up at camp as. That's basically how it works. Every day has uh, has a theme. Actually, uh, once a week we celebrate a a Yom Tov. On a weekly basis, we have a Yuntif. Uh, this week is this week is Pesach. Oh. Celebrate the Yom Yom Tovim. Uh, we include uh, the most special days of the Jewish calendar and uh, our night activities and our themes throughout the day. Uh, it's, a, it's a way to it's a way to get our campers to get a taste of those days in the camp environment together. It's really beautiful. Well, if it's Pesach this week, I assume the cleanup has been extra special. <laughs> and I would also guess you're serving matzah in the dining room, I would that's, assume. That's, that's a, it's a big simcha for all the campers who are gluten-free today. <laughs> oh, boy, I'll tell you. I at hope, dinner tonight, I'll be wearing a kittel, sitting at a table, singing Manishtana. I, I, just, uh, I, let you know. I just hope you're not going to make the campers go for the uh, most stringent shear of maror and harosis, I hope. Uh, there's plenty more year-round for everybody. Tonight is just about Afikoman. Yeah, you could say that again. There is a lot of moror in the uh, in the community year-round, but it seems that during the summer there's a special atmosphere up there at Camp Hask. I know that uh, the, the staff is uh, knocking down the doors trying to get positions up at Hask, and you guys are always turning people away, so that would indicate that you have uh, quite a group, to say the least, who are committed and who are doing an amazing job this summer. It's it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to see the uh, the cadre of of staff that we have in our direct care is just awesome. It's just amazing. The ruach is incredible. Uh, the relationships that are developing are absolutely amazing, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's really the best the best of the Jewish community all together working together. By the way, you know this is a, a lot of times happens with veteran camps. I was, assume especially with yours, where it's you know. Where, where for obvious reasons there there's a desire among the parents and community to get you know campers up there multiple years. Is it difficult to welcome first time campers? Were you able to open up and and, and see some new faces this year? Or that's almost impossible. Um, there are plenty of campers that come that are new campers each year, and we spend you know a great effort to get to know them really well. Our counselors are always so excited. Those are the most you know, exciting bunks to be in with the new campers where the experience is new and fresh and the communication is, you know, very open and deep. Uh, we love having our new campers. And Baruch Hashem, each year we welcome new campers to camp. Wow. Uh, we want to serve as many people as we can to, uh, to provide, you know, the, the needed respite to families and the great experience for our campers. Because essentially... Yeah, anybody who shows up there wants to come back the following summer. It's, it's, it's sometimes it can be really difficult sometimes. I'm sure for you guys to do that. There's no doubt about it. We work hard to try to bring in as many people as we can, and there are a lot of campers, you know, who have next chapters in life uh, with with you know for themselves, right. for what's best for them, what's best for their families. Right, so true. Baruch Hashem, we have the opportunity to serve people for many years and develop those relationships, but also you know the balance to find uh, new families 
to join our uh, our community. Rabbi Judah Michelle, Rabbi Avi Pollock, they're both with us from Camp Hask this morning. It's an amazing Thursday at Hask. How do I know? Because every day is amazing at Hask. Um, we'll talk about the 29th in a minute. I, I want to make one point to this audience. It's a point that the three of us have made before, but I think it's really important to reiterate. Um, one of the things that is really separating Hask um, in their work um, is uh, is the incredible commitment that they have to those who are in extremely challenging situations. And I, I would think that it's, it's impor- important to point out, especially as we open up uh, you know, the 29th and the fundraising day, etc., it's important to point out that you have campers in camp, unlike any other uh, any other place, uh, that are that that are 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 what I guess we could call very low functioning, who are in, in very challenging circumstances, whose staff, whose counselors, really have to be educated in terms of how to care for them. Would that be a good description of how that uh, of that group in Camp Ask? Um, our counselors require a lot of training. Uh, we spend countless, countless hours helping them prepare. More than ever before, we invite parents to campus to help train the staff members wow. hands-on before the summer even begins. Wow. We receive a lot of follow-up and a lot of guidance from our medical staff, from our head staff, from our behavior therapists on campus, from the camp psychologists, uh, from the therapists. There's a lot of ongoing education. There's a lot of support, emotional support. Our counselors need to be supported emotionally through, through the summer. Uh, it's all to make sure the care is as wonderful as it can be, make sure our campers are safe, they're healthy, they're having a great time, and the parents can rest easy and relax knowing that their children or siblings are in the best hands. It sounds like in some cases you literally have parents who need to train staff how to use certain types of equipment, how to deal with, you know, different physical situations, right? That type of thing. Without a doubt, uh, when it comes to feeding, when it comes to uh, respiration, there are all sorts of uh, equipment that our campers rely on for their health, for their safety. That's why we have uh, 16 nurses on staff. That's why we've got, uh, you know, a medical doctor on staff, a paramedic on staff. We have... uh, we have feeding therapists and behavior specialists on staff who live on campus uh, just to make sure that the quality of care is great and to make sure that uh, the campers are having a great time and are safe. Unbelievable. All right. The Camp Hask Experience, Rabbi Judah Michelle, Rabbi Avi Pollock, and hundreds of other Camp Hask staff members invite the entire community to a day in Camp Hask for alumni, for friends, for family. They're doing it all. From a family softball game to a catered lunch to an exciting carnival to an inflatable park to pony rides to a live concert, they're calling it the Camp Hask Experience for four hours on the 29th of July from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. up at Camp Hask. We will be broadcasting live from there on Sunday, July the 29th. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to kick off a 36-hour million-dollar campaign where really, gentlemen, our community only has to come through with 25% of that. You know that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, our community is going to come through in a big way. Uh, they're, 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 they're very, there's really no part of the Jewish community that's not affected by what's happening here uh, every single day, whether directly with, uh, with family members, children or siblings uh, who are here working, 
who are here benefiting from the services as campers. Um, every single part of the Jewish community is being serviced. We, we've had bar mitzvahs uh, this summer from uh, children of uh, Lubavitcher Shluchim and uh, have planned for next week a bar mitzvah for a, a wonderful family that's part of our community uh, from Satmer. Uh, and each one, uh, each one we design, custom design their, their simcha to be able to fit the minhagim, to be able to fit the standards of kashrus uh, in a way that they're comfortable and feel good about. Um, we have kids from families that are, that are not affiliated uh, in the Orthodox community throughout the year, and during the summer the cha- their kids have a chance to really be a part of the, of the beautiful, vibrant Jewish Torah environment. Um, really all segments of the population, the heads of the Aguda and of the OU and of Yeshiva University and everywhere in between are all here um, speaking with our staff and learning with our staff and connecting with them because Camp Pesca is really a level playing field in Kuala Yisrael. So we know by opening up our doors, uh, the community is going to take the opportunity and the privilege to be a part uh, and partner with us to support what's happening here on behalf of the greater Jewish community. So- yeah, we know how accurate that is, 100% true. And by the way, the reason I say that you only have to raise a quarter of it is because everything that's happened, and we'll talk more about it, obviously, as you get closer and when we're there that day, uh, but on the 29th and 30th of July, if you get to $250,000, then it is, in fact, a $1 million goal achieved because four times a quadruple of every donation is going to be matched by the matchers who are participating in this Camp Hask experience that we are calling Break for Hask, and you can get information at breakforhask.org, and we'll explain all of that, of course, coming up. Uh, Jewish music, a very important component. I bet you've had some great artists up there already. What are you planning for the 29th of July? Uh, it's going to be an unbelievable day. We have a full band on a professional stage uh, with an incredible setup um, with an amazing MC. <laughs> Can't wait. Oh, with the greatest MC in the, in the Jewish world. Um, and an unbelievable bill. Uh, Simcha Liner is headlining with uh, Morty Shapiro and uh, Myla Kohn and a lot of surprises that are going to be coming everyone's way. It's going to be live-streamed at breakforhask.org. Uh, people are going to be able to see it all over the world, and it's going to be awesome. All right, look, uh, you know, like, you, like we always say, Jewish music such an important component. You have three of the top artists Simcha Liner, Mordechai Shapiro, Milo Cohen of today. Uh, in addition, we should mention that people should not hesitate to bring their entire family because even for the young, 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 young kids out there, the pony rides, the inflatable park, the carnival, it's all going to be a very big attraction for them. You're, you're basically, it sounds like you're turning Hask into a very festive atmosphere, the entire camp. I think you're going to need the entire campus with all the things you guys are setting up. Yeah, we're, we're going to be ready. Your guys in the uh, MIH department are probably... Uh, are probably mapping it out right now as we speak, huh? Uh, every detail will be planned. It's, <laughs> it's, we said on Thursdays we celebrate Yontif. That Sunday experience day is going to be a true Yontif for Kali Israel and for Camp Hask. A day in Camp Hask for alumni, friends, and family. Everybody is invited to be there. The Camp Hask experience, experience the happiest place on earth from Sunday, July 29th at 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. up in Parksville, New York. Simcha Liner, Mordechai Shapiro, Milo Cohen, in the big live concert, pony rides, inflatable park, exciting carnival, catered lunch, softball game, and so much more. And most importantly, the kickoff of the big campaign, Break for Hask, which you could watch all at breakforhask.org, and that we will continue to explain minute by minute through our broadcast and through the Sunday and Monday of that week as we hope and help that uh, that Hask will, um, uh, will go ahead and achieve its goal 
of hitting $1 million. Again, the community would be uh, would be uh, successful in this effort if they just got the $250,000 because all of it is being quadrupled. Rabbi Michelle, Rabbi Pollock, anything you'd like to add to this conversation? Um, we are so excited to see everybody. We're just loving this summer. We're nearing our halfway point. This Shabbos will be the halfway point. Already? And as amazing as the first half was, we are looking forward to an even greater second half. What, does it just fly by like that? It flies by. When you when you invest yourself, fully commit yourself to doing Avodah Sakodesh like everyone here is doing, it just the time just flies by. Can't wait to meet both of you again up at, uh, at camp. See you on the 29th, Kolak Avod. And uh, we'll continue to remind our listeners to join us up there for the big day. Looking forward. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Rabbi Judah Michelle, Rabbi Avi Pollock, they're up at Hask. They're there now as we speak. Another glorious summer. Yeah, they they might not consider the weather as glorious as I do. I love the boiling hot weather, but, (laughs) but the summer is certainly glorious the way they described it. And on the 29th, we literally are heading up early, early Sunday morning, setting ourselves up. Hopefully, right smack in the middle of the campus. And uh, we'll bring the whole thing to you live as everybody enjoys the visit. And we get to speak to so many key people who are up there, up at Camp Pass. And, of course, uh, all through that Monday, uh, Sunday and Monday, we'll be reminding everybody to continue to log on and donate and make it a successful day and really make a Camp Experience Day a worldwide Hask experience for everybody. Bezrat Hashem. We've really come together for Hask a lot over the years, usually in some type of Jewish music form. This time it's going to be direct from the campus during another glorious summer. Thursday morning broadcast, it's JM and the AM. More coming up. We've got uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine. We are going to try to conclude the lecture on uh, Benjamin of Tudela and his Jerusalem Geography series. You are listening to JM in the AM. Come quickly and uh, fix something that was uh, leaking, broken, whatever. She says, come right away. He says, what do you think I am? A pizza place? Toch Hashem Shani Pizzeria? I'll come tomorrow. Welcome to the Middle East. So uh, the, uh, he comes to Italy. Now, in Italy, it's a different type of Jew. Also not Svard, not Ashkenaz, not Provencal. Now, we're not accustomed to that. We're just, you know, but we, even Ashkenaz and Edos and Mizrach, etc., uh, we find hard to digest. But here you have very different types of Jews. The Jews in Italy... And later he's going to travel to Rome, but he's in northern, he's in Tuscany first, which was uh, very heavily Jewish, not in terms of population, but there were Jews in every little place there, Bergamo, etc. There were always little Jewish communities. So uh, the Italian Jews have an old history that they came there in Roman times. They were brought the slaves, and then they were freedmen, and they stayed in Italy. They also have their own 
ritual of prayer, Nusach Romani, which is not Ashkenaz and not Svard and not Provencal. I remember I, I davened once with them when I was in Italy, and it's very hard to know where you're at. It's a different ritual completely. There are certain things that are basic, the uh, the Shema and the uh, Amidah, the Shmon Esrei, etc. That's basic, but uh, there are certain things that are uh, the Psuke de Zimra are not at all like ours. Well, many things are different. And even the Nusach of the Kaddish is different. And they say that they're the original Jews, right? These guys don't know anything, right? We're the ones that came here. We're from the beginning. There were uh, great uh, uh, scholars in Italy. Uh, some of the Balitosis were from Italy. And he will travel throughout Italy. He'll go all the way from the north to the boot of Italy. He ends up in Bari and in Otranto, which are the heel of the boot of Italy. And naturally he'll then go to Sicily, we'll see. In uh, Trani, which is a town in the bottom, there's a great family of Italian Talmide Chachomim. Uh, the founder of the family is Tosfos Reed, Reish Yudalid. That's Rabbi Yeshayo de Trani, from Trani. It's like Mitudela, except in Aramaic, instead of the Mem, it's a Dalit. Tosus Reed studied together with Rabbeinu Tam in, uh, in the yeshivas of the Tosafists, in the generation after Rashi. And... Uh, I'll tell you a few interesting things about him. First of all, Rabbeinu Tam writes him a letter, and he compliments him. And he says, Mibari Torah, Udvar Hashem Meotranto. So that was the, uh, the aura that he held him in. That to take Mitzion Teitzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Yushalayim, and paraphrase it, on two Italian towns. He says a very interesting thing, just uh, we're talking about Tosus Reed. Uh, you know, Rabbeinu Tam has a shita, he has an opinion that uh, the period of time between sunset and the time when Shabbat is over is 72 minutes. He bases it on, a, on the Talmud. It was a. Uh, it's not a universal opinion. It's not Rashi's opinion, etc. But he says that it's 72 minutes all over the world. It's always 72 minutes. So they all ask on him that physically we see that's not true. For instance, if you're uh, if you're in Nome, Alaska. In the summer, after 72 minutes, uh, in fact, there's a baseball league in Alaska called the Midnight Baseball League. They play their games at midnight without lights. So how can you say it's 72 minutes? And the same thing if you're in the equator, or your shalim is further south, 
So here uh, it's, uh, they say it's Keherafayan, right? It's 18 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So what does he mean, 72 minutes? And then he describes it as though uh, there are two sunsets and the sun goes to rest and then again. It's very difficult to understand his, uh, his reasoning. So Tosis Reed says, because he said I learned with him, you know, he's a contemporary. He says Rabbeinatam is a holy Jew, so he talks the way Jews talk. He said, but I'm not so holy, I'll explain it to you astronomically, the way to non-Jewish scientists. She said, first of all, you have to realize this is a man in the, the 1100s. He said, you have to realize the world is a globe, drowned. He wasn't afraid that he's going to fall off the end, when most of the world was. He says, now, when the sun sets, it's setting on a curve, right? The horizon is curved. So he says there's something that's called the refraction of light. In other words, light bounces and then goes up, which is a proven factor. So he says that Rabbeinu Tam's shita is that the maximum refraction of light is 72 minutes. After 72 minutes, you're not seeing the refraction of light anymore. You're seeing the reflection of light that exists in the atmosphere, but no longer are the sun's rays being refracted. So therefore, that would be true all over the world, and it would be true at any time and any place. So that's a, uh, that Tosis Reed is an eye-opener. He has many, many great things. So he's a Jew in Trani, right? So he has a grandson who's called Rabbeinu Yeshaya Ha'achron, the later Rabbeinu Yeshaya, also from Italy, from Trani, also has a great commentary to the Talmud. And they came from towns that were really minuscule. But uh, the tradition of Torah and their devotion to Torah was such uh, that they are influential until today. He travels to Rome. When he's in Rome, there's a pope called Alexander III who is involved in terrible controversies. The church itself was always involved in terrible controversies, internal and external. And he writes about the Jews of Rome. What he sees in Rome. St. Peter's wasn't built then. So he, uh, he's not very impressed by... But he is impressed by the ruins. He has a detailed description of the Roman Forum, the Arch of Titus, why Jews don't walk under the Arch of Titus. And he describes the Jewish community, and he says clearly the Jewish community is protected by the Pope. They're the Pope's Jews. Now the idea of the Pope's Jews is also a fascinating one, because uh, one of the problems that plagued Christian theology was how did the Jews survive? 
Here we're talking a thousand years after the beginning of Christianity. We would say now two thousand years after. If the Jews are responsible for all the crimes alleged, and because they're infidels, and because they are the ones that uh, killed the Savior, etc., etc., how can it be that they're still here? And the underlying question is, how come we we're not? How come we're not able to destroy them? So the theologians uh, created a, a good answer for them. They said the Jews are the witness people. Since there's going to be a second coming of the Christian Savior, so somebody will have to recognize him. <laughs> so who's going to recognize him? So the Jew, because he was Jewish, so then the Jews will recognize him. So we have to have Jews. So the Pope therefore had a circle of Jews that lived near what is today Vatican City. And they were protected by the Pope. They were the Pope's Jews. There was a few hundred uh, families, etc., And uh, it's very interesting that in the Second World War, when the Germans took over Italy in 1944, so the Italians, uh, Mussolini officially, uh, he created anti-Jewish laws, he imitated Germany. But the Italian people per se did not enforce them. The Jews were somehow able to... uh, to escape uh, the worst of the events that happened in the rest in Europe. However, when uh, the German army, the Italy surrendered to the Allies in April 1943, they attempted to get out of the war, but uh, Hitler would not allow that, and uh, Mussolini was put back to a puppet government, and the German army came and fought and the uh, Allies never conquered Italy. When Germany surrendered, they still had not conquered all of Italy. When the Germans were there, they took the Italian Jews, as many as they could, and they rounded them up, and they also ended up in Auschwitz. The Jews of Rome were saved to a great extent, 8,000 Jews, because the Roman neighbors hid them. And the Pope himself, Pius XII, that was the only time that the church protested against what was happening to the Jews in Europe, because now it was his Jews. It was the Pope's Jews. And uh, there was a rabbi, he was a Hungarian originally, and he was uh, somehow, he was the chief rabbi in Rome, and out of gratitude to the Pope, he converted to Christianity. <laughs> so, Benjamin um, Mutadella is in Rome, and he sees uh, all the glories of the church, but his main concentration is on the Jewish community there, and upon the ruins. He's fascinated by antiquities and ruins. Now, uh, he goes to uh, Naples, 
and he gets a boat and the boat takes him to Cyprus first to Corfu and then to Cyprus there he finds a Karaite Jewish community the Karaim uh, were a sect of Jews uh, that in the 8th century broke off from rabbinic Judaism and they were very powerful for about 400-500 years till they practically have evaporated in our time but uh, they rejected the oral law uh, they rejected the rabbinic authority they rejected Jewish tradition but they had their own rules so for instance he writes that the Karoyim had Shabbat not from Friday night but from dawn to dawn meaning from Saturday morning to Sunday morning but they sat in darkness because their interpretation was that no light could be on so he says they sit in the cold and the dark and they call that Shabbat but he said they're very uh, tenacious in their faith they're very strong in it and uh, they say that all the other Jews are wrong and they're right which if you think about it always happens when you have break-offs when you have new movements you have every, you know, they're the ones that know they're the ones, the other ones are wrong, etc, etc and uh, so he writes about that community we have a very uh, uh, clear uh, picture of what Karaite life was like he said the non-Jews treat them as Jews and the Jews treat them as non-Jews halachically the Rambam held that they were Jewish Uh, many other Rabbonim agreed with him but the people you know uh, you'd be surprised that the Jewish people don't always follow the rabbis wisely so and uh, therefore uh, the, the people didn't accept them people were not willing to take them and they were always held as a separate community the Karaites in Eastern Europe were destroyed by the Nazis who uh, did not deal with the niceties of theology and uh, none of that uh, mattered with them anyway from there he takes a boat and he's going now to Greece he comes to Greece he finds Jews in Greece the Jews in Greece were uh, really Babylonian Jews who had emigrated to Greece and again he is more interested in the Acropolis than in anything else he's a a great tourist you know he's looking for the interesting places so he's interested in all the uh, Greek uh, the Parthenon he writes about all of the things that, uh, that even today are the tourist spots and he says it's a small Jewish community and they follow the Babylonian customs the Babylonian ritual and the Babylonian customs which makes them close to the Ashkenazim 
that the Ashkenazim are really from Bovel and the Svaradim are from Eretz Yisrael. And that is uh, that difference existed even in the time of the Talmud, even in the time of the Mishnah already. So uh, from Greece he keeps on going, he comes to Constantinople. The Constantinople is the uh, seat of the uh, Byzantine church. But it also is the crossroads of Europe and Asia. And it also is where the Muslims and the Christians meet then. Later on, it will become completely Muslim. And the Muslims will push all the way into Europe, even to the gates of Vienna. But that's in the 16th century, not in this uh, 12th century. And there, he has a sizable Jewish community, maybe a thousand. Now, we don't know, uh, he's not clear whether he means a thousand people or a thousand households. And uh, he uh, describes uh, their life, and he says it's the most cosmopolitan city in the world. In other words, Rome is backwards, uh, Constantinople is, he's impressed by the buildings and by the architecture and by the, the grand bazaar and everything that goes on there. And he says the Jews are very active and commercially, and that they, uh, even though the Byzantine church was severely anti-Semitic, but the Jews in Constantinople seem to uh, somehow uh, uh, exist without uh, fear or uh, any sort of trepidation as to what their future. He goes further and he comes to Aleppo, Chalab. Now the Jews were in Aleppo for... Uh, J.M. in the A.M. We will conclude, I hope, <laughs> our lecture, our most recent lecture for Ibarra Wine um, about Benjamin of Tudala. Hopefully we'll get to its conclusion before we wrap up uh, today's broadcast. But first, as you know, ladies and gentlemen... Project Inspire always has something inspiring when it comes to Tishabov. And in this case, they really have a couple of really inspiring things to discuss. One of them uh, is going to be, um, among other places, uh, experienced at NahumSiegel.com and a whole bunch of other outlets. It's the Project Inspire tradition that happens every single uh, Tishabov uh, when Charlie Harari and an amazing panel literally ends the fast together. That's how it works. They literally end the fast together with you, with us. Uh, Project Inspire presents We Need You, Stepping Up and Taking Responsibility, happening as a Tishabov live streaming talk show beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, featuring Charlie Harari and the Project Inspire staff. Uh, again, NahumSiegel.com, one of so many places that you can watch this free of charge and be part of it. Now, in addition to that, there is a film that's being made available this uh, Tisha B'Av, which I believe is one of the most, um, of all the films, of all the different things, and we know there are a lot of programs, a lot of movies, a lot of videos that come out uh, to inspire the Tisha B'Av audiences around the world. This one, to me, is absolutely remarkable. To discuss both of these things, Project Inspire, starting at 7 p.m. Sunday, and... The film, which is called The Man at the Wall. Please welcome both 
Charlie Harari, and Yassi Friedman. Charlie, of course, who's going to be leading the program Sunday night, speaks on behalf of Project Inspire and certainly inspires thousands of people on a regular basis through many different avenues. And Yassi Friedman, who's the managing director of Project Inspire. Charlie, Yassi, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you, Thank you so Great to be on the show. Great to have you. And I should mention, Charlie, normally on Thursdays, is preparing for his uh, broadcast. It's nine days, obviously, so we have a, a little bit of a vacation schedule, but he broadcasts for us, uh, Unlocking Greatness, every single Thursday, 9 a.m. here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Charlie, why does this work? Why does a concept that did not exist before Project Inspire embarked on it of being together 7 p.m. on Tisha B'Av. We get Lel Tisha B'Av, right? We get that communal uh, gathering. We get being together for a kinnis in the morning after Shacharis and lasting all the way to Mincha, and we get the special Mincha that goes on. But usually after that point, both men and women in our community are ready to sort of wind down until we start eating and drinking somewhere around 9 p.m., why is it that this has worked spending the last two hours of Tisha B'Av with the greater community? Because it's the most important part of the day. We, we take for granted that the end is, because we're fasting, we think the end is less relevant in many ways because we put in our efforts and we sat down and read Eicha and we really sort of worked so hard in the first piece but if you look at Yom Kippur, the spirituality works opposite than the physical. In the physical world, you get tired as, as time goes on. In the spiritual world, you actually grow. And spirituality grows. Yom Kippur, the highlight is the end. When Tisha B'Av, we're really in the beginning in destruction, but sometime in the middle, we have to stand up. And we realize that Hashem wasn't destroying us. He was destroying the base Hamigash. And now it's incumbent upon us to start to rebuild it. So from Chatzos on... That's when the power starts to build. So as you get to the end, when you're in that Ni'ilah moment of Tishabov, now the, the force is with you, if you will, and the power to go out there and make that difference is at the highest form, which is why that time is so critical. You know, it's funny. I was just going to say traditionalists may not like it, but uh, we really could term it the Ni'ilah of Tishabov as you just did. And bringing that element, as you mentioned, uh, so important to Yom Kippur, to Tisha B'Av itself, and obviously on a much more communal level, Yom Kippur, you know, being has obviously a community component, but when it comes to Ne'ilah, we are thinking so much uh, toward the individual aspect of the holiday. Now, you've named this We Need You stepping up and taking responsibility. So moments ago, you said, Charlie Harari, that we have this obligation to, you know, get into full gear, especially toward the end of the day, to think about, you know, rebuilding. What does We Need You, what is, in fact, our responsibility to step up and take responsibility. So one of the things Yossi and I have spoke about, and, and, and Yaakov and the entire Project Inspire team, is this idea of responsibility. The film, really, is about an individual, I'm sure Yossi's going to speak to it, about an individual who really stepped into a role that may have been beyond, so to speak, what people would think was for him, and as a result became successful. One of the greatest, I think, tragedies of Tisha B'Av today is you get inspired in the beginning that we want more, right? We want Ka'ula, we want a better life, we want more Hashem. And then in the mind of the individual, they say to themselves, oh, that's too big for me. Right. I'm regular, I sit on the floor, the people that are the leaders of our people may bring Ka'ula, Mashiach, whatever, 
But me and you, let's just wait for the bagel and get in back into August because it's summertime. <laughs> Nachamu, Nachamu. <laughs> Nachamu, right? Greatest, right? Nachamu, Beis Nisan, the greatest two days of the year, right? No Tachanan and then no more nine days. It's like this is our, this is our Yanta. And we want to make sure it's clear to people that if you look around at some of the greatest people in Kali Yisrael, they were regular people that took on super regular responsibility. And it's a flip. It's not that your ability gives you responsibility. It's the responsibility that you take on gives you the ability that you never had. So we're trying to make the message individualized so people can say to themselves, it's time for me personally to step up, step up beyond myself and be more than I thought that I was. Oh, and what an example you have. Uh, we have both Charlie Harari and Yossi Friedman with us live via telephone. Yossi, uh, the, the film, uh, Charlie alluded to it, it's about Rabbi Mayer Schuster, for those who know about him, uh, as you say in the introduction to the, um, uh, to the, or the blurb about the film, you say the story of a shy, ordinary man who accomplished the extraordinary. And for those, again, this is a very short review, but for those who don't know who Rabbi Mayer Schuster was, he was the man at the wall, which is the name of the film, and literally would take people from the Kotel to experience Shabbos and experience Judaism for many for the very, very first time. Yossi, I said to you off the air, uh, of all the films and all the videos and all different things that are available for Tisha B'Av over all the years, this one to me may be the most fascinating. Tell me about the making of The Man at the Wall. Well, Malcolm, thank you. That makes that makes two of us, actually, because um, you know making this film has been just an amazing experience for me, for, the, for our entire staff. Um, you know, Mayor Schuster was the man at the wall. People ask, you know, how did it all start? Right. You know, he must have been a guy who just approached people. He was the guy who, you know, who stopped you on the bus and asked you who you were, etc. That's not who this man was. Um, in fact, the film actually has eyewitness to the very first time that Mayor Schuster tapped someone on the shoulder. Um, we, we tracked it all the way back to the very, very first time. And at that point in time, you understand that this man, that we, we speaking on this phone as well as the audience listening, have probably more ability to accomplish what he accomplished than he did. Um, and yet he was the one who accomplished the extraordinary. And, you know, the, the Project Inspire message, of course, is that from people can go out of their comfort zone, should go out of their comfort zone to reach out to non-from people. And, you know, the epitome of Avas Yisrael, not only, you know, worrying about every Jew's, you know, individual needs physically, but to worry about them spiritually. I mean, this man understood the need to have Yiddishkeit in a person's life, and he was a man on a mission. And this film, I, I agree with you, Nachum, is is by far, you know, the most inspirational piece that we've worked on. Ah, oh boy, oh boy, I'll tell you. So, so Charlie... Uh, just like when one white might complain to God that they didn't have a leadership role because they had poor oratory skills, and God might say, Kaviachal, uh, look at our greatest leader ever. Moshe Rabbeinu did not have great oratory skills. He, in fact, had a speech impediment. In the same way, if we would say, oh, you know, we didn't have the ability to do uh, this type of work, God might say to us, what do you mean, Roy? Mayor Schuster, who did not have the skills for this, look how many thousands of lives he changed. Absolutely, and I think that exact point is one of the most important and most challenging points for someone to think about. Lubavitcher says that if, you some, if there's a problem in the world that you see, maybe you're seeing it because you're put in the world to fix it. Mm. That a lot of us think that I would know if I'm great by now, 
and we miss the entire equation. That's not how God runs the world. You have to step into greatness. You have to go beyond yourself in order to achieve what you're here for. If you came to this earth born with it, it wouldn't be an accomplishment to just go do it. And so we have this misperception that it's, it's because of a deficiency in me, for example, like your example. It's, it's the opposite. It's my perspective. And when all of us, in our own ways, in our own Dalit Amos, look around to problems and take it upon ourselves to fix them, even if they're small problems, even if they're familial or community or whatever that is, we grow into ourselves personally, and then we grow into ourselves nationally. And that's, that's the game change. Yep, no question about it. The game change on a very, very large level, which a lot of us don't think we can do. Uh, but no, 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 I just want to point out one of the, you know, people ask like, okay, how many people, you know, we all heard of Mayor Schuster, the man at the wall. How many people in the film, um, a friend of Mayor Schuster's who lives in Muncie said, he asked Mayor Schuster, how many people already did you, did you make from, uh, you know, like, uh, 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 yeah. right. <laughs> so he says, I don't want to kill us. I will kill us. But he says, he says, I, he says, I don't know. He says, you have to have some idea. You have to. He says, I don't know, but more than 5,000. <gasps> oh. And and I had, you know, I, I was telling this over to, to one of the people in the film, and he said, he said, yeah, but he was counting my brother, but my brother made me from, and my sister, and my other sister. Yep, of course, the ripple effect is one that we're all used to at this point. We don't realize, or sometimes I would hope we do realize, that every time they... A move like that is made every time we reach out. We are really essentially reaching out to uh, subsequent people who are involved with the person, and on top of that, of course, the generations that follow the person. And, and one of the things that we're going to come out on the show, for those that tune in on at 7 to 9, um, is we're going to actually not just talk about one person. We're going to talk about multiple different organizations that you people know that are sort of household names in the Jewish community. And each of these organizations, each of these stories, we're going to see that it was started and founded by quote-unquote regular people that were acting beyond themselves. So nobody should think that it's just Kirov. Project Inspire's message goes well beyond just Kirov. It's just general greatness. It's, it's claw work. Right? It's yep. communal responsibility. And so it, it, it cuts across every discipline that if you look around at the entire community, really, with a, with a microscope – you will sort of see that the founder or founders of these organizations, with almost very little exception, were regular people that stepped beyond themselves, because that's just how it works. So we're trying to dispel this myth that there are people, like in the sports world, like you know that LeBron James is amazing at basketball because God right. gave him certain physical talent. Right. And so as much as I like basketball, I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, like a, I'm a white Jewish boy, like it's not going to happen. But in that world, in the general communal response, it doesn't work that way. Each of us have kochos and talents, and if we bring them out and take responsibility, that will allow us to be the leaders that we're meant to be. 100%. Everybody, everyone make sure to tune in. 7 p.m. Sunday, Tishabov, a unique thing that Project Inspire thought of and implemented, ending Tishabov on a real high. Charlie Harari hosts the Project Inspire staff, of course, is part of it. You can email any type of audio recording or email that you'd like to share with them in terms of thoughts on all of these matters by emailing radio at projectinspire.com. And our website and the NSN app are among the many, many places where you could, where you could participate 
in the live streaming of the event. It's all free of charge, 7 p.m. this coming Sunday night. Um, uh, Yassi, tell us about the film. How do people see it? Well, you can see it on uh, projectinspired.com. Um, it's, it's available already now. That's a little tip, you know, for people who won't, you know, go and get a chance on this. It's available right. as of last night. Um, there's actually two versions of the film. There's, there's an extended women's version uh, with women interviews as well. Uh, there's a men's version for people who are more comfortable with that. But basically everybody and anybody should be seeing this film. I, I showed this to a Rav uh, here in Eretz Yisrael. I was, uh, I was showing him the film, and he said, a film like this every Jew needs to watch. But is it literally, as, think- is it literally as simple as that? Literally just log on and, and, and share with everybody? That's right. You make a minimum donation, a small donation of $10. Nice. You click through, and, and the film is yours the, re- the rest of the day. You can watch it as many times. You can watch the women's version, the men's version. You can watch our previous films. There's plenty of inspiration to be had for, for the, the, the small donation of $10. I'm just curious how long the film is. The film is at 52 minutes for the only men's version, an hour and seven minutes it's a real movie. It's a real documentary. Oh, it, it, and it, the truth of the matter is, if I, if I thought that people were, you know, wouldn't fall asleep after an hour, you know, could have made it five hours. But <laughs> uh, there's, there's plenty to go on. And, of course, you, you, we realize that this man, although, you know, whether it's over 5,000 or whether it's more than that, the man inspired a generation of Bali Chuva. Yeah, no question. You know, it, it basically the film is set up in a way where you understand how how Rabbi Shuster stood at the wall, and you kind of see the stories how it ends up uh, at the hotel every time, and basically how lives have been changed uh, since. It's amazing. The man at the wall. Everybody, young, old, man, woman, everyone, try to see it. Go to the website, Project Inspire website. If you don't watch it, the Tisha B'Av, then the, then to try watching it today or any time during the nine days or afterwards because it's really – I haven't even seen it yet, and I'm telling you how inspiring it must be. It's called The Man at the Wall, of course, uh, uh, remembering Rabbi Meir Schuster, one of the legends uh, when it comes to Kirov, one of the legends when it comes to outreach in the Jewish community. Charlie, I cannot, uh, I, 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 can't, I cannot be any prouder than to have you associated with this network. It is, I, I, I love the fact that this is such a unique and incredibly different uh, program. Actually, taking the time, and again, I know, I know the cliche, and I know I've said it before, but taking the time when people are most focused on getting to the supermarket and deciding what they're breaking their fast on and instead spending the time with you and the Project Inspire staff and utilizing that time to such an amazing advantage everybody going forward. So call vote. Thank you. And we're honored to be part of your network and what you do every single day and how you inspire people on a daily basis uh, is also something that we look, look to and is something that has changed our community. So it's very appropriate that in, on your network we're doing this because it's a, it's a real alignment of goals and interests, and we're honored, and we thank you so much. Much appreciated. To both of you, an easy fast and a fast that really helps inspire people worldwide. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nachum. Thank you. Yassi Friedman with a reminder that the man at the wall is available now. Go to the Project Inspire website and be inspired. Don't just give 10 bucks. Give more if you want. You'll. By the way, you'll want to I bet you, I haven't even seen the film yet. I'm telling you, you'll want to give more. And Charlie Harari reminds everybody with me and all the Project Inspire staff 
that uh, this remarkable concept of spending the end of Tisha B'Av together happens again this year at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We are one of the outlets where you could experience it, NahumSingle.com and on the NSN app. Experience it. Spread the word about it. Get your kids involved. Could you imagine if we just change our kids' attitudes at 7 p.m. on Tisha B'Av from what are we having to break our fast to let's spend the next couple of hours, you know, thinking about the Jewish future, both on an individual and on a communal level. What a difference. What a difference. JM and the AM on this Thursday. I, 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 I regret that we were not able to conclude. The only thing I regret is we weren't able to conclude our wine's lecture, but we will begin as we uh, traditionally do. We will begin tomorrow morning. With her by Wine's lecture on uh, Benjamin of Tudela, part of the Jerusalem Geography series. Uh, so you'll have that, and um, and that'll start starting at the six a yeah starting at six a.m. Eastern time tomorrow morning. I remind you again that Tishabov is going to be something unique and quote unquote exciting. How exciting can Tishabov be? Of course, uh, but we are going to present right after JM in the AM, right after JM Sunday with Matis. We're going to be presenting. This unique and incredible Tisha B'Av experience from the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. You are all invited. You are all invited to go there on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island to the New Springville Jewish Center. Where they'll daven chakras at 820. Where they'll explain kinnis with Rabbi Eliyahu Sonnenshine, with Shlomo Schwartz, with Rabbi Moshe Faskowitz between 915 and noon. Then at 1215, Mayor Simcha Siegel. And Rabbi Aaron Raps with thoughts about Tisha B'Av and Dodavim Mincha at 145. All of this will be seen at NachumSiegel.com. All of it will be seen at NachumSiegel.com. All of it can be heard at NachumSiegel.com. All of it can be heard on the NSN app. So check it out. We'll do that during the day on Tisha B'Av. And then, of course, 7 p.m. for Project Inspire. Pretty remarkable. We had some amazing conversations this morning about our trip to Israel and, and the... Um, the uh, return trip, because we spoke both Rabbi Fass of, of uh, Nefesh Benefesh and Rabbi Michelle and Rabbi Pollock of Hask, where we're going to be on the 29th on Hask Experience Day. I want to remind you, if you want to get a shout-out to be included in the Hask show on the 29th, or if you want a shout-out for the NCSY shows, Yom NCSY and NCSY summer program shows that we're going to be doing Thursday and Friday morning with JM and AM, Thursday and Friday morning next week, if you want shout-outs on either of those broadcasts, send us an email that says in the subject line, shout-out NCSY or shout-out HASK, and send it to Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, Nahum, N-A-C-H-U-M, at NahumSiegel, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. If you send that to us, we'll be able to include it in our broadcast. And yes, next week, Short review for a second. Nefesh Benefesh from the plane on Wednesday mornings, JM and the AM. Thursday mornings, JM and the AM from Yom NCSY and Latrun. Friday mornings, JM and the AM from the uh, NCSY summer programs in Beit Meir. And then Sunday, for a Monday JM and the AM broadcast, Sunday we will be up at Camp Hask for the uh, incredible Hask Experience Day which will be incredible and remarkable. And you're all invited to participate with us by being up there in Parksville, New York on that day. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored 
digital radio around the world and the web at NahumSiegel.com. On the NahumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up an amazing Thursday here at JM and the AM. Tomorrow, it's Erev Shabbos Chazon. We are here. Malcolm Holmline will join us, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We'll have the weekly update and plenty more. Make sure to be tuned in. Have a fabulous Thursday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.